This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4 and the second installment of the Rux Trilogy. We have been just overwhelmed with emails from folks who enjoyed the first installment of the Rux Trilogy. I know you're going to dig this one because it really is the meat and potatoes of the whole discussion. In case you couldn't figure it out by now, for some reason, if you're listening to the show, Volume 2, and you didn't check out Volume 1, which would be really confusing, our guest is Bruce Rux, and he is the author of the amazing book, Hollywood vs. the Aliens. If you didn't listen to Volume 1, stop this interview right now, go back, listen to that, come back and listen to this one. Trust me, it'll make a lot more sense once you hear the first part. Now that we shook off all those folks, let's get down to business here with Volume 2. Our subtitle for this one is The Program, because as I said, it really is the meat and potatoes of the whole conversation. We really get into a ton of stuff here regarding what Bruce sees as a UFO education program at work via TV shows and movies. Let me give you a thumbnail look on what we're going to be talking about here in Volume 2. We're going to discuss Star Trek. We're going to hear about Gene Roddenberry and his run-in with the infamous UFO contact group, The Nine. We're going to cover The X-Files, Doctor Who, Star Trek The Next Generation, The Quatermass Trilogy, the James Bond films, and a ton of other sci-fi, UFO, and esoteric films. As you may have noticed in that list, there were some UK stuff in there. We're going to go international quite a bit this week with Bruce and find out if there are any similarities or differences in how the UK and the US handled the subject of UFOs on film and TV shows. There is quite a bit of political talk as we get into all the different sort of machinations of the federal government and who is pulling the strings of the intelligence organizations. As such, in this installment, we're going to hear about Richard Nixon's take on the UFO subject and how some of the UFO films of that time really reflected Nixon's personality. Then we're going to move into the Jimmy Carter years and how his administration ushered in a whole new era of pro-UFO films, such as Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Superman. Plus, it wasn't all just sunshine and roses and puppy dogs for UFO movies during the Jimmy Carter presidency. We're going to hear about some of the anti-UFO movies, like Dean Kuntz's Demon Seed and, of course, Alien. Then we're going to hear about the transition to Reagan as president and how there were some serious and drastic changes to the portrayal of UFOs and aliens in films and TV shows and then we're going to wrap it up here this week with some discussion on those magazine-style programs like In Search Of and Unsolved Mysteries and what's become of that genre of TV. So as you can see, we cover tons of stuff here, just a myriad of different TV shows and movies. And I'm really excited to hear the feedback from all the folks who dug Volume 1. If you think Volume 1 was packed with stuff, wait till you get into Volume 2 here, which we are about to in a moment. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bruce Rucks, 
go back and listen to volume one. I'm not going to do a bio here for all three parts. You don't need me to repeat myself. And like I said last week, you've been waiting long enough to hear from Bruce Rux. Let me just plug the two books here because they are definitely worthy of reading and perfect time of year to pick them up since it is the summertime. Relax by the beach with these two massive books. First one is from 1996, Architects of the Underworld, Unriddling Atlantis, Anomalies of Mars, and the Mystery of the Sphinx. And the book we're discussing here in the trilogy, of course, Hollywood vs. the Aliens, The Motion Picture Industry's Participation in UFO Disinformation. That was published in 1997. Bruce doesn't have a website, doesn't have a web presence right now. Hopefully he'll be online soon. Until then, hop on over to Amazon.com, go over to BarnesandNoble.com. There's plenty of books available there from Bruce Rux. You can pick up either one of these books. Get them, folks. I'm telling you, amazing stuff. And after you're done with the Rux trilogy, you're going to wish you had already had the book in your hands to read. So just get ahead of the curve and pick them up right now. So with all that said, let's rock and roll. This installment of the interview was recorded on May 29, 2009. Bruce Rocks, Volume 2, talking about Hollywood versus the aliens on BOA Audio, Season 4. We've been talking here about Outer Limits and how it was sort of a change in the message as far as UFOs and alien civilizations and stuff like that go. And it was sort of the beginning of this change in the message that was going to happen throughout the 60s on TV shows. I guess what I wanted to ask to sort of bridge this thing, and, and as we had talked about before we started taping here, you know, it's so hard really to, to wrap your mind around and wrap your hands around this whole thing because we're talking about like a multi-decade thing as well as two different facets of media, TV shows and movies. Oh, it goes much further than that. It goes to bubblegum cards, comic books, uh, any kind of popular medium. Oh, wow. It was everywhere. Interesting. That, and it's not a, an ironclad change in the thrust. Uh, what happened was, originally, you had nothing but ridicule of the subject mm -hmm. or trying to keep it out of the mainstream. Yeah. In the 1960s, or let's be more specific, about 1963-64, exactly in the years that, uh, or the year that uh, MKUltra stopped with the CIA. Mind you, it just became another project and moved someplace else. Yeah. But officially, when MKUltra came to an end... That was when suddenly you started seeing more educational stuff coming out. Now, there was still a lot of the ridicule. You still had Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Lost in Space and a lot of really silly space opera stuff. But you also started seeing more serious shows like Star Trek. All right, so you're setting me up in a good way here, and I like that. But I, I just want to sort of just close the book a little mm -hmm. bit on earlier. As we're going into this better scene of the 60s and better stuff, it sounds like it's coming out on TV. Did the movies stay silly and awful, or, or did we start to also get, you know, some quality movies with regards to the whole UFO phenomenon? Well, for the most part, uh, the movies have always more or less trivialized it. And you would have some occasional serious views, but they were still really low budget. The Brits came out with quite a few of them, and they even had some serious ones back in the 1950s. Uh, the Quatermass series springs immediately to mind because mm -hmm. Nigel Neal. Uh, so it's not like it was a brand new thing in the 60s. Uh, we'd had this kind of educational thrust or, or an attempt at an educational thrust um, early in the 50s as well. But when it comes to the TV and movies, uh, generally the movies still remained pretty silly. I'm trying to think of any serious ones right now. I mean, uh, I'm just kicking my mind around and saying, okay, what came when? Yeah, I couldn't really come up with anything, and I, I have a feeling, and we'll obviously get to this in a little bit, that that sort of sea change happened in, in the 70s, uh, mid to late 70s. 
Well, it certainly happened when Jimmy Carter took office. It's yeah. no question of that. And you saw some stabs at it when, um, in the early 70s, I would say, when Nixon and Ford were in, interestingly. Yeah. You said these shows in the 1960s when, you know, Outer Limits came along and then later Star Trek and everything. Uh, you said these coincide with the closing of MK Ultra. Do you think there's some kind of connection between those two events, that MK Ultra closed down and then all of a sudden there was this change in the portrayal of, of UFOs and alien civilizations? I'm positive of it. JFK was a very interesting president. Uh, he was so interesting that we can only start assembling what he was doing together decades after his death by unearthing what the CIA was doing and what it was that he had found out. Now, MKUltra ran ostensibly from about 1953 to 1964. Uh, those would have been its actual operating years. Yeah. This was the CIA's mind control experiment stuff. Mm -hmm. Mind you, I'm sure that it didn't completely end at that point. It, it must have continued in some form or another. But officially, it was disbanded at that time. Now, right exactly at that time, Outer Limits was in about its seventh episode, I think. It might have been earlier than that, a fifth possibly, uh, when Kennedy was killed. And the month after Kennedy was killed, that's when Doctor Who first appeared on the airwaves. So it was right at that time that there was this sudden change taking place. Kennedy was basically wiping out the CIA, and he was changing the thrust on a lot of things. Uh, I'm quite sure that UFO stuff was not the only thing that he was changing, but that would have been one of the things that probably was in his purview that he was probably that he was attempting to change. Yeah. So you think that this change was a result of Kennedy getting in there and, and making changes, and then all of a sudden the attitude about how we're going to portray UFOs and stuff changed? I believe he had a major influence on it. I don't think he was alone by a long chalk, but I do believe he had a major influence on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like from what you've been saying and, and what you say throughout the book that there's all these different sort of factions at work uh, you know, debating what the public should think about UFOs, and then you can see that in the different movies and stuff that come out. Yes. Uh, and that continued after his death. There had been some attempts before. There had been some, uh, Nigel Neal being an excellent case in point, of trying to put some uh, serious-minded UFO material in front of people. Now, mind you, it's still more or less as drive-in entertainment, you know, something that you would see at the movies, but it's put out there seriously enough that you can actually ponder it and think about it. So it, it had already been sort of pioneered. But yes, I think Kennedy was kind of pushing it in that direction or was attempting to push it in that direction. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, which I found really interesting, was just the whole influence on Gene Roddenberry as far as like UFO groups and stuff like that. And the whole thing with the nine that you talk about in the book, which is really fascinating because it sounds like, you know, they were trying to try to influence him to embrace, you know, like a pro-UFO thing. And from what I understand, Roddenberry was kind of anti-UFO, which is surprising given, you know, what he produced. But he may have been, you know, in the know, so that maybe that was why he poo-pooed UFOs to, to people that asked about it. But I guess, like, talk a little bit about Roddenberry, the whole thing with the Nine, and, of course, Star Trek, and how that just became a juggernaut. Well, Roddenberry was a very interesting guy. He was quite visionary. Uh, he was a secular humanist, definitely, kind of an Aquarian, if you will, or of a Masonic mind bent, I would say. Uh, but he was definitely not in, in organized religion. He had come from a Baptist family in his youth and just considered it nuts. So he rejected that as he became older and very much became a secular humanist. I guess you could say he was kind of a Quaker, really. Um, and Star Trek, philosophically, you can see where that came out in Star Trek. Uh, he took a kind of a bold move by having an interracial crew, considering it was 1966. And in fact, NBC protested that. They said, we're going to get hate mail like you wouldn't believe down in the South. And he stuck to his guns and said, no, I'm going to keep it that way. And they never got a single piece of hate mail, amazingly. 
or at least that's the story that Roddenberry told, and I actually believe that one. Uh, and he wasn't preaching anything. He just put it into effect. Lieutenant Uhura was black. Sulu was Oriental. Uh, no one said anything about it, and that was the whole point. They're just there. They're with the crew just like everybody else. Yeah. Which, back in the 1960s, this is pretty bold. You didn't see that kind of thing very often. So he was very, a very progressive thinker. He was far-thinking. Uh, I mean, we've it's so natural to us now that we can't imagine there was any kind of prejudice like that back then. But there was, and he was overcoming it in that particular fashion. And I think he was doing that with a lot of, of his other philosophies as well. Uh, anyway, when that show was over, and you have to understand, Star Trek was kind of a fluke at the time. It was not a big hit. Uh, the thing was very low in the ratings. It was below Gomer Pyle, certainly. Gomer Pyle was actually a hit, uh, where Star Trek never really was a blip on the ratings. It was way low. Yeah. And the only thing that kept it going were letter-writing campaigns, uh, largely engineered by Roddenberry himself, I might add. He was a very clever guy. Huh. Uh, and uh, some of the fans behind the scenes were doing the same thing. But it was lucky enough that they got it pushed into a second season. And it got pushed into a second season because Gene Kuhn got involved and said, okay, look, uh, where the network is having some problems with this, let's just you know toss in a few other things. They tossed in the whole um, Federation not being able to intervene in other societies and all of that. Uh, and they, they threw some of the more recognizable props and uh, ideas into the series that we associate with it today. Yeah. Well, then it really took off. But it still wasn't enough to carry it through to a third season. So again, they pulled some manipulations behind the scenes. They managed to get the thing put back up for a third season. Well, NBC was kind of tired of it itself by that point. And, and again, if there is any kind of organized uh, attempt to put UFO material out before the public, it is not unilateral. Because NBC was actually trying to kill Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry was trying to keep it alive. And I believe there were people behind the scenes that were doing what they could to keep it alive as well. But NBC was kind of tired of it. It wasn't doing well enough in the ratings. They wanted to get rid of it. So even though they managed to get it into a third season, NBC kind of stuck Freddie Freeberger, or Paramount stuck Freddie Freeberger in there. And Freddie Freeberger was famous for killing any show that he touched. He did the same thing with Star Trek. Uh, he was like the last season guy for any show. So they, they deliberately put him there, and it worked. It killed Star Trek. Uh, the cast was kind of getting tired of being jerked back and forth, too, and the production team, and so they all kind of heaved a sigh of relief when it was done. But by having gotten the thing going for three full years, the thing became a, a mammoth hit in syndication a few years after. Now, at the time, Roddenberry could not have known that, and before all that took effect, uh, he was kind of depressed because Star Trek was his one big shot, and it, it had made him popular, but he was not a big hit. Yeah. And even for the audience that it did have, which was largely a cult audience, mostly of college students, he was a one-hit wonder, and nobody wants to be a one-hit wonder. So he kept trying to come up with different series, something that would succeed, and you may remember a lot of things, Earth 2, um, Cluster Tapes, uh, I'm having to really cast my mind back to recall any of these because they pretty much sucked. Uh, I remember these when they were on the air, and every time I saw Gene Roddenberry's name come up, we would run to it because we were Star Trek fans. Say, oh, good, Gene Roddenberry. And we'd watch it, and it wasn't that good, and sure enough, it didn't take off. It was never picked up as a, as a series. But he just had a number of pilots that yeah. failed. So he's got this one semi-hit, a bunch of failed pilots, and he's kind of depressed. Now, we're getting into the early 1970s when he's really cranking out the pilots and they're really falling on their face. Yeah. Uh, he didn't have a whole lot of money. He wasn't really happy. And he bumped into a race car driver. I do not remember the guy's name. And the race car driver hooked him up with Lab 9, uh, which he had heard of. 
Lab 9 was sort of a proto-X-Files outfit, where this is kind of the way they were advertising themselves, uh, investigating paranormal stuff and UFOs in particular. Huh. And they claimed that they were in touch with extraterrestrial entities all the way back from ancient Egypt uh, and many thousands of light years out in space. There were like 24 different civilizations. I think that was the right number. And they all gave different names, and they all talked through trance channelers. Now, trance channelers automatically big red flag. Yeah. Uh, well, Roddenberry was no fool either, and he was doing the big red flag also, but he did check it out, uh, and he asked some very intelligent questions of the trans-channeler, I might add. He was nobody's fool, uh, but these guys were not fools either. They recognize that when somebody's desperate, that's when they're going to believe whatever you, if you tell them something that they want to hear, they know that they're going to believe it. They'll yeah. be more prone to believe it when they're desperate. So, uh, they're going after Roddenberry, and they're whining and dining him. These people had money. This was not a poor outfit. Years later, this was not all known at the time. We didn't know who all these guys were. Roddenberry didn't know who all these guys were. But they've got nice chalets. They've got nice uh, pieces of property out in the country, you know. They're not poor. Yeah. These guys were hooked up to intelligence. They're hooked up to the Bronsman family in Canada, who are multimillionaires. They're magnates. Uh, I believe they own one of the... Um, alcohol chains. I can't remember which one it is, though. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they own a lot of other businesses as well. The point is, they got a lot of money. And one of the guys that was behind this was Dr. Andreo Puharic. Andreo Puharic is another one of those guys who, the second his name comes up, you know, start the carnival music. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was Yuri Geller's promoter, if you will. Uh, so he was almost certainly hooked up to Israeli intelligence, and he had been connected to the CIA, at least peripherally, with the whole remote viewing thing. And when they were studying psychics, uh, Uri Geller was one of the first guys they brought in to study. And, of course, there's Andrea Puharic. Well, Andrea Puharic is behind Lab 9 as well. So automatically we've got some questionable or shady people uh, sitting behind this entire outfit. And, I mean, Roddenberry is gradually figuring some of this stuff out himself. Most of this, most of what I'm telling you now, that was not known at the time. This is all stuff that came out by diligent research years after the fact. Another person that got sucked into it right about the same time that Roddenberry did, I can't think of his name. He was one of the influential guys behind Stargate. And when we get into Lab 9, it, it's obvious how it shows up in Star Trek and how it shows up in Stargate. Uh, so they were starting to see a chain here. These Lab 9 guys, whoever they were, were starting to see a chain. Uh, the stuff that they were coming through with their trans channelers was really sort of vague on one side and more specific on another. And the specific side was they were saying that they were the original gods of ancient Egypt. This is where the nine came from. They were smart. They had an occult pedigree. These guys were not stupid. Uh, the whole concept of the nine goes all the way back to ancient Egypt, and you'll find it throughout ancient mythology all over the world, but Egypt especially. You had the eight original creator gods who were the Ogdoad. They were headed by Thoth, who became the ninth, which made them the Aeneid, or the nine. Uh, you'll also find this carrying through to the formation of the Knights Templar. Uh, they were formed by, what, nine original knights. Uh, you can read that however you want to, but the point is it, it goes all the way back, and these people were not stupid. They knew that. So that's the pedigree that was being claimed by the extraterrestrials being channeled in Lab 9. This is the backstory, and this is what Gene Roddenberry was getting sucked into. Now, for a few weeks, he kind of showed up at uh, whatever retreat they were taking him to and listened to the trance channelings and asked some rather intelligent questions. Uh, when I read them, I'm, it's kind of obvious to me that he was trying to trip them up, and he semi-succeeded because they weren't stupid either. 
Uh, he would ask, well, if you're a disembodied intelligence, how exactly are you planning on arriving on Earth? They say, oh, yes, we'll be coming in metal ships. Well, why do you need to do that if you're disembodied intelligence? Oh, we are disembodied intelligences, but these 24 races out here are not, and they will be traveling in spaceships, etc., so forth. <laughs> yeah. So they weren't stupid either. Uh, and it's very obvious that Roddenberry was at least half aware that someone was trying to take him for a ride. Uh, how much exactly this influenced Roddenberry is kind of difficult to say, and I will be interested to hear what Peter Lavenda and anyone else has to say on this who's been doing some research. However, to a certain extent, whether he actually believed that he was talking to the nine original creator gods of ancient Egypt uh, or 24 civilizations out there in space, which went by silly names like Jehovah, you know, I mean, they're just kind of throwing obvious fake names out. Yeah. And this, they might be throwing you some legitimate information, but they're also pulling your leg at the same time. So it's a mixed grab bag. But whether he believed that he was actually talking to extraterrestrial intelligences or not, and I imagine he did not, uh, still, some of the influence of what they had to say and the philosophy behind it, you can see showing up in Star Trek, and especially Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, which I think it had rather an unfortunate effect there, and of course in titles like Deep Space Nine. As a matter of fact, the year after uh, he was being seduced by Lab Nine, Space 1999 came out in Britain, and that was Gary and Sylvia Anderson. Gary and Sylvia Anderson have got government pedigree all over them, just up one side and down the other. Uh, it was Lord Lou Grodd that was backing their stuff. They were doing cheap uh, puppet shows for kids. Yeah. Fireball XL5. Uh, the best of them was uh, also Captain Scarlet. Um, they did a, a couple of good ones, and they're also the ones that did Space 1999. Most of their stuff, really low grade. That was the joke with Lou Grodd was Lord Low Grade. <laughs> uh, he was their backer. So, yeah, they had definite government connections there. And they had, like, you know, the, the Royal Marines were uh, performing routines for them at the end of their kids' puppet show movies. I mean, why would the Royal Marines be coming out and doing this? This is just nuts. So they had government connections is the point. Uh, and all these people are kind of loosely connected to Lab 9 or The 9. Now, these are people that have been contacted by whoever this shadowy outfit is who's trying to influence them in some way or another. Well, Gene Roddenberry is probably the most famous name that they got. Uh, until this guy who was involved in Stargate, and I wish I could remember his name. He was one of the, the central guys behind Stargate. Yeah. For any of your listeners who are interested, if you really want to find some stuff out, just go Google uh, The Nine, spelled out exactly like that, T-H-E-N-I-N-E, -E, and put Gene Roddenberry's name with it, and you'll find some interesting articles pop up, uh, which will talk about exactly what I'm talking about right now. Exactly, yeah. So... Check that out, folks. I always encourage people to do their own research as well and not just rely on, on the guests because they, they might get sent willy-nilly. I'm not talking about you. Just, <laughs> just Oh, no, I, I wouldn't even exempt myself from that. <laughs> uh, I, everything I have is off uh, public sources. I cross my T's, I dot my I's, and I cite my sources. And Absolutely. that's what everyone needs to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can't just take someone's word for something. You need to check it out. That's why you write books, for crying out loud, so that if someone, if someone wants to make a case or make an argument, fine. Uh, name specifics, and we'll go at it. Exactly, yeah. And the sources part of your book's monstrous anyway. So, uh, and I always, whenever I see that, I, I usually uh, am pretty happy with with the author because then I know that they've actually done the research and not, aren't just making stuff up or trying to fit pieces in together. Now, one of the guys who requested that I do the interview with you wanted me to ask you about V, V 
Series V, and it does kind of fill... They're, they're remaking V. I know. I'm excited <laughs> about that with the lady from Lost, so it should be uh, it should be kind of fun to watch. And uh, you do mention V sort of in this part of the book, I guess, because uh, we're going sort of chronologically through the book, so even though we're jumping way ahead to the 80s... Oh yeah, don't don't feel bad about that. We'll we'll be jumping all over the place anyway. That's what I'm <laughs> that's what I'm figuring uh, as as we're going through here. But uh, but I guess just talk a little bit about V because I always really liked the first movie and maybe the second movie, but I didn't really follow the series too much. But I did kind of like the story because it was sort of an allegory for World War II and all that stuff. At least that's the impression I'm under. But uh, there obviously are huge alien UFO uh, implications with V. But it, just, it didn't sound like you were a big fan either, so I guess I'll just ask you about V so, so uh, the guy there who requested the interview can, can hear about it. Well, you're a fan of it, and, and I'm not faulting you for this. You're a fan of it because you were young when it came on. So it has a special place in your heart. Yeah. Uh, I certainly watched it when it came on, and uh, I was impressed by it as far as special effects went and all of that. The stuff is very plainly propaganda. Just about everything that came out in the Reagan years, if it had to do with UFOs, very serious propaganda. Uh, Reagan was very much in bed with the military and with the intelligence agencies and pretty much would give them whatever they wanted. So if they wanted to throw out propaganda, oh yeah, he'd be all for it, especially if it was going to scare everybody and he could get more money for Star Wars. And you're not going to get more money for Star Wars than if you're about to be attacked by big, giant, evil, nasty reptiles from outer space, now are you? Yeah. This is the president who said that uh, in the event that we might be attacked, and he did actually use these words, by beings from outer space, that we would join hands with the Russians and repel them. And he repeated that on more than one occasion when he was asked by interviewers, and uh, so did the Soviet premier, for that matter. Uh, people asked Gorbachev about that, and Gorbachev said, well, it's much too early to say anything about that, but yes, under such a circumstance, I imagine we probably would. So it did be, kind of become mainstream, and definitely that was Reagan's thrust. And the movies or the TV shows that came out during his administration very much had that bent, which was a complete reversal of what was happening under, well, not a complete reversal of what was happening under Jimmy Carter, but definitely a veer away. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, V, what have you got? The whole basis of this story is, look, they're here. They're in the skies. We can't miss them. Everybody knows. we got floating cities over our head. And down they come, wearing red suits and looking just like us, only they wear sunglasses. And uh, they're really nice guys. They're giving us cures to cancer. Uh, they're teaching us all kinds of fun stuff that we can do and helping us uh, maximize our efficiency. And they're just helping us out in every way they can. Although they're denigrating our particular brand of science, so the scientists are now being labeled like the Jews were by the Nazis in World War II, and everybody hates them and oppresses them and kicks them out of their jobs. And the reason for that is simple, because the evil invading reptiles, which is what they really are, don't want anyone who might be able to stand up against them. So who are they going to get rid of? The scientists. So they demonize them as much as they possibly can before anyone realizes what game they're up to. Well, obviously these guys are not human. They're lying. They just wear human masks, which are pretty convincing. And actually they're just really horrible, evil reptiles from another planet who are here to consume the human race as their food stuff. And that's pretty much the whole thrust of the series. That's all there is to it. Except, of course, that you have an underground... Uh, bravely fighting against the evil reptiles. And some people who are not wise to the reptiles' game, they actually think that the invaders are friendly and trying to help us out. And that's pretty much the whole series. There's not much more to it than that. It's kind of a simple shoot 'em up Yeah. Which, generally, that's what you were going to get under Reagan. Yeah, I do remember it fondly because I was a kid. I'm looking forward to seeing how they remake it and if it's going to be any good or if they can get some legs to it. Because, like you said, that's really all there is to it. So it's going to be kind of hard to string that out 
as a series, which I think is kind of what happened to it originally, maybe. Oh, yeah, I'm very curious, too. Uh, it, it just ran out of steam. It didn't have really any place that it could go, or very few places that it could go. They did play with the alien-human hybrid business uh, with oh, yeah. uh, Robert England, who, the friendly alien who, who actually kind of likes us and has a relationship with a human female, and, oh, look, they have a hybrid alien baby. So at least that much of it kind of came out. Uh, and as far as remakes go, yeah, it could be a lot better. The original Battlestar Galactica, uh, very well-intentioned, really pompous. But uh, the remake, quite good. We'll definitely have to talk about that when we get into, uh, you know, what's been going on since the publication of the book. Yeah, well, it seems like nowadays, too, with, with the new V, serialized TV sort of, like, made a comeback in the last few years. So hopefully uh, it'll it'll do well in that regard. Because I don't remember, it seems like there weren't as many serialized dramas as, they, as there are now, obviously. Cable invigorated it. Uh, once cable came in, I don't know, that particular format just works especially well on cable. They don't do full seasons of TV like you catch on ABC or, or CBS or NBC. Uh, they're doing 13 episodes a season. So it's natural for them to kind of serialize it within a, a shorter and more concrete story arc per season. Yeah. I think that's what invigorated that particular style. Yeah. And then while we're in the realm of TV shows and, and that part of the book... Uh, you do also sort of jump ahead and, and do a, a blistering critique of X-Files, which uh, you say really didn't have any accurate information about UFOs for the most part. And I actually, they were scattershot. Okay. Uh, I, I didn't mean to be nasty to the X-Files. I actually love the X-Files. It was a great, great fun show. Uh, I liked it all the way through to the end, even when the cast changes. But as far as actual ufology goes, yeah, it was just sort of a grab bag. I get the impression that Chris Carter grabbed the conspiracy theory of the day, pulled it out, and stuck a story on it. Uh, but as far as any actual ufology goes, yeah, there's some interesting stuff in there, but I have no idea whether he knew it or not. He, I think he hit it just by accident when he did have it out there. What do you think of uh, how it reinvigorated interest in ufology and stuff, which it seemed to be the case uh like, there was this huge X-Files boom for ufology, not just here, but in the U.K. especially, it seems. Um, no kidding. And yeah, I was, very much so. And I was, I guess, just sort of wondering, you know, like, in line with your thesis about, you know, misinforming the public and disinforming the public, you know, do you think that that was just like a happy accident for anybody that might have wanted to use the program to... Oh, no, I think it was very strategic. They weren't exactly trying to educate the populace about UFOs. They were trying to interest the populace in UFOs, as opposed to simply demonizing them. Now, mind you, there's a whole demonic story arc behind UFOs in there. You've got alien shapeshifters and different races and some kind of wars going on, but they never resolve anything. They just kind of toss these tidbits out, which never go anywhere. And by doing that, what they're doing is tossing the subject constantly in front of everybody and making it look realistic. They're making it look not so much like it's crackpot anymore, but like serious people could could actually regard it. Yeah. Notice when this series came out. It was right at the beginning of Clinton's first term. Generally, and this is not always the case, but just as we were talking about with Reagan, Reagan's a fearmonger. The Republicans generally tend to go toward the fearmongering side of it, and the Democrats usually tend to go toward trying to get people to think about it. Whether they're actually trying to educate them or not, we can debate that, but they're at least trying to get people to think about it yeah. and not simply ridicule it or toss it out of hand. The X-Files succeeded brilliantly in that particular regard, and practically everyone involved in its production team, uh, I gave a bio of a lot of these people in my book. 
They don't have beautiful CIA handprints all over them. If they're not actually CIA, the CIA would love them. They have upper-crust educations. They've traveled. Mitch Pileggi's father worked for the Defense Department, I believe it was, or the State Department. Uh, they've got connections. They were getting around. So if you were going to hire people for a project like this, uh, they're definitely going toward the inside track. It was a wonderful show. Uh, people paid a great deal of attention to it. still immensely popular. Uh, we had just a recent sequel come out, which how many years has it been since that, sh uh, that show was canceled off the air? And they're still making movies. Yeah. <laughs> this is just amazing to me. That's how popular that show was. And, yeah, as far as anything stimulating interest, it's not answering anything, but it's just as far as stimulating interest, The X-Files is certainly the most successful show that's been on the air since, uh, I would say, Star Trek or Doctor Who and lately possibly Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, okay. That kind of closes the door a little bit on some of the TV shows we were going to talk about as far as the big ones of influence and stuff like that. The only remaining really big one that I can think of here from the from the 60s era was the Twilight Zone, and I just wanted to talk to you about that one because, of course, uh, you know, it remains probably one of the most popular esoteric programs out there and uh, still on, obviously, like everywhere. It's still on all the time. All the time. It's an immensely popular show. I fully agree with you. It, it was nowhere near as good as The Outer Limits as far as getting accurate information out or getting people to seriously ponder them, truthfully. Mm -hmm. But uh, as an anthology show, everyone was crazy for it because practically everyone that we all grew up with started on that show. Uh, the Outer Limits had the same kind of claim going for it. These were up-and-coming actors who nobody knew, a lot of them. And now, uh, they're all name brands. Everyone knows who they are. They win Oscars. They're all over the place. Uh, so there's a fondness in everybody's heart for going back and watching these. The Twilight Zone, generally, was not interested in stimulating serious thought. It was interested in creating uh, fantastic stories with uh, an inserted element of irony, for the most part. But it did work. It caught everybody's attention, and definitely we all remember it, and to the point that we're still talking about it today. Then the question becomes, it's, still, it's a sort of form of, um, it's still entertainment, it's kind of background noise, so is there any actual accurate ufology in it? Well, yeah, there is, as a matter of fact, but it has the usual sort of spins attached to it. It's not like they're trying to be serious with it. They're trying to scare you with it a little bit. Uh, the famous one, of course, is To Serve Man, where you have the alien coming down named Canemite, of all things, and he deceives the entire human race into believing that his book, To Serve Man, uh, implies that he's here to help us all progress. What it actually is is a cookbook, and he's taking everybody and putting them on board the flying saucer, flying back to his planet, and cook them up in a pot. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Since we have so much material covered, we're just going to keep pressing forward here, and I wanted to talk to you about uh, one person in ufology that you do give a pretty tough critique to that I hadn't really heard much of the stuff before until I'd read it in your book and, and uh, we generally try to keep the after school uh, uh, talk <laughs> oh, yeah. out of the show but I did want to talk to you about this whole thing with Whitley Strieber because uh, you know you seem particularly critical of him and his abduction story and, and sort of just you know how, how it came along and was quite different from what we actually know about abductions. Well, what's funny about Strieber, I don't know why people take him seriously. If you've done any homework on Strieber, and no one has, that's the entire point. Uh, there was someone who wrote uh, the story behind Communion, I think was the name of the book, who did a very thorough um, investigation into Whitley Strieber. He's talking to Strieber's family. He's talking to his friends. Uh, he's investigating his stories. This is not my scathing critique. This is everyone else's scathing critique that I'm picking up and relaying. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm adding my scathing critique to it of one thing in particular, which is a story that he told UFO magazine. Uh, you have to remember, Whitley Strieber 
was the darling of the UFO community for a very short period of time. They then all turned on him. I don't remember exactly what the inciting incident of that was. It probably had to do with Bud Hopkins. Uh, Whitley Strieber pretty much betrayed Bud Hopkins, and Hopkins never exactly trusted him that fully to begin with. So that started a slide away from everybody looking at Whitley Strieber and thinking, oh, this is the guy who can tell us everything that's going on. Yeah. Now, Strieber then continued to nail uh, his coffin shut all the tighter with such things as an interview in UFO magazine, which is where I blast him, because he tells a story. I don't remember who the interviewer was. I've still got the issue somewhere. I could dig it up, and I mention it in my book. It is listed. And they were asking him how come he'd kind of fallen out of favor. And he said, oh, well, I'm misunderstood, and I don't know why Bud thinks this, and I wasn't really betraying him. I was actually trying to help him. And everything that he says is incredibly self-serving and, and just not remotely believable. And I actually let him hang himself as much as I possibly can in my book. I just let him talk and then throw a spotlight on what it is he's saying. The guy makes no sense, and he contradicts himself. And in order to kind of defend himself to this UFO magazine interviewer, he said, well, let me tell you the kind of thing that happens in my life. This happened not too long back. I had the son of a friend of mine in the car with me, and we drove off the highway, and suddenly we weren't in our world. We were in another dimension. And I was freaking out, and he was freaking out, and he was yelling and screaming and trying to get out of the car, and I pulled him back in the car, and uh, we just didn't know where we were, and we were in a great panic, and uh, a short while later, I pulled back onto the highway, and everything was perfectly normal, uh, and we were 20 miles further down the highway. Well, this sort of thing happens to me all the time now. B.S. I don't believe a single word of that story, and I don't think anyone else does either. Certainly nobody else who has ever been claimed to have been abducted by a UFO has told any story that ridiculous. And no single part of that story makes any sense. People do not act that way. If they had driven off a highway and found a strange landscape, you don't immediately yell and scream and pull your hair out and attack people. People just don't act like that. <laughs> but someone who's telling a, a BS story and trying to work up your emotions might tell a story like that, especially if he doesn't understand human emotions very well himself. And no, I don't hold a very high opinion of him for exactly that reason. All right, fair enough. We'll just leave it at that and suggest people do their own sort of investigation into uh, the whole Whitley Strieber story. Because as I said, uh, you really sort of painted him in a light that I hadn't thought of before because uh, I came along sort of after he'd already been entrenched in the UFO community and everything. So I didn't really realize that there was uh, this whole backstory to everything. So I'll definitely... Oh, and it, yeah, it's hardly that. There are a whole lot of stories like that. That's just one. We'll move in now to the sort of international stuff, because you do talk about a lot of the product, as far as TV and movies go, uh, that was coming out of the international markets, notably uh, the UK with, uh, you know, the Doctor Who and, the, and, as you said, the Quartermass trilogy and those stories from Nigel Neal and the James Bond films. And I guess the first point I want to talk to you about, we'll probably be jumping around chronologically again, but that's cool, is... Um, you talk about the changes in Doctor Who over the years, most notably Peter Davidson's or Peter Davison's portrayal of the Doctor, and you tie that in with Star Trek The Next Generation, and you make some really cool and interesting points about uh, just the whole way Star Trek The Next Generation was set up uh, aesthetically with these politically correct sort of tones and pro-corporateness uh, sort of mixed in there, and, and, and sort of how just to tie this back to the Peter Davis and Doctor Who, that was like sort of along the same lines, I guess you could say, uh, of aesthetics and, and theme. So I guess, you Very know, so. I'm setting you up here. Go go wild, Bruce, and, and tell us about <laughs> a little well, bit about the Doctor Who thing and, and that changeover and, you know, what that was all about. I'll start with Doctor Who and Peter Davison. 
because Star Trek The Next Generation actually came after that. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Who, except for a few of us kind of nerdy geek people who get off on sci-fi like this, uh, Doctor Who had not been that known in the United States until shortly before Peter Davison took over. Then it very quickly took off. We're talking uh, early 1980s. The early 1980s, all of a sudden, bam, in America, this became an immensely popular show, Doctor Who. They started showing it on PBS, and a lot of people tuned in to watch. The next thing you know, it was it was a kind of a minor phenomenon. Uh, you started seeing conventions in the United States for Doctor Who where, you know, a couple of years before, no one had heard of Doctor Who, except for a few geeks, maybe, or people who had traveled over to Britain and seen it a couple of times. And it was a super low-budget show. And Doctor Who, until about the time Davison hit, and even then, not much, uh, Doctor Who just did not have a budget. It was super, super bargain basement stuff. Uh, they were doing, you know, plainly visible zippers and plainly flopping rubber monster tentacles all over the place. Uh, there was nothing terribly credible about it. But the scripts were good. The scripts were fairly literate, and those really sold the show. That and just the conviction of the actors and the kind of chemistry that they had, it, it worked a kind of a magic, and people bought it. So it really started taking off in the United States. And exactly when it started taking off in the United States, the BBC, who owned Doctor Who, said, you know what, now we've got a hit on our hands. What do we do? Let's kill it. I don't think they deliberately tried to kill it, but what they did do was inject something into it that had never been there before. Now, this was right when Reagan was in office, and Reagan was selling everybody this whole youthful uh, vision of the world. Everyone is young, uh, everyone is a yuppie, and everyone works with this kind of teamwork ethic within the corporation. And this was very aggressively being sold at the entire time that Ronald Reagan was in office. So, what's the new Doctor Who do over in Britain? Well, the old Doctor Whos had always been older men. Uh, they'd always been very iconoclastic. Uh, they were kind of brilliant. They had un uh, long and unruly hair, and they wore long scarves and tuxedos, and they, they were just very counterculture and very against the grain. All of a sudden, Peter Davison comes along. Peter Davison wears a preppy ice cream suit. He wears all white. Uh, he plays cricket, literally. And he's got this whole bunch of people traveling around with him. Uh, like their own little, I don't even want to say corporation because that's not quite right. Uh, some wag once called it a, a bunch of fruits and nuts in the same bowl. <laughs> and I thought that summed it up pretty well. But the point was that the doctor was practically not doing anything on his own anymore. It was his whole team doing stuff. And the doctor was almost an extra in his own show. Well, this is just the type of thing that Ronald Reagan was trying to push. And Margaret Thatcher was not doing any different over in Britain. They were very much on the same page as far as that went. So this is one of those places where you can see a behind-the-scenes political influence affecting some form of popular entertainment. Now, when Star Trek The Next Generation came along, again, we've got Roddenberry, who hasn't had a hit in how many decades now? And he's getting older. Uh, he's starting to go a little bit senile. He had, a little, he had some problems with uh, drugs and alcohol. That was not talked too much until toward the end of his life, and even then a lot of people were reluctant to because we all hold a high opinion of Gene Roddenberry, and I still do, actually. And I don't feel the less of him for any of this. But uh, he created in Star Trek The Next Generation the kind of show that he had originally wanted with Star Trek and which definitely injected some elements of the Nine. The elements that he injected in the Nine, and I can't detail all of these off the top of my head, but the characters themselves were based on the Egyptian gods. You've got, um, what's his name, Data is representing sort of the Hermes Thoth character. You have uh, Picard as Horus. Well, he's kind of the sun god. He might have been raw. Uh, his very name, Jean-Luc Picard. Luke is light. And Jean Picard is an astronomer's name, famous astronomer. So um, 
anyway, uh, you've got these characters that are sort of mirroring uh, the Egyptian Aeneid, so to speak. Uh, Jordy LaForge is uh, Ta, or Hephaestus, who, as he would be in the Greek, you know, living in the earth and creating all the magnificent metal things and all of that. You can find corollaries for each of the court characters this way. And it's fairly obvious, uh, once you examine them in some detail, that this is sort of the thrust that Roddenberry was going with on this, at least on an unconscious level. Uh, Anubis, Worf would have been Anubis. His name even sounds like a dog uh, barking, uh, and he's dark. You know, he represents the, the dark guardian. You just see a lot of things like this popping up. And not everyone in the audience would pick up on that, but by plugging into universal archetypes, Roddenberry knew what he was doing. Yeah. Unfortunately, his particular style of storytelling happens to mirror the absolute worst style of storytelling that ever existed on planet Earth, and that is Stalinist Soviet socialist drama. In Stalinist Soviet socialist drama, this is what you get. There are no bad guys. There are good guys, and there are better guys. And a typical story goes like this. The better guys come across the good guys. They notice the good guys are not farming as well as they could be. So they teach these people how to farm better than they were. And then the people who are now farming better say, thank you, better people, for making us better people like yourself. We will now go and make other better people like ourselves as well. And the better people go off and say, that is good. We will make it so. And they go off and they make more better people like themselves. And that's exactly what you got for seven solid years on Star Trek The Next Generation. They almost never had a legitimate threat that they couldn't just talk away, completely unlike anything in real life. I would love to see people talk away all the problems in the Middle East. Lo and behold, it doesn't seem to work. Jean-Luc Picard would be able to do it, just because he's Jean-Luc Picard. You see the teamwork ethic being vigorously pushed at everybody? Because every single episode, sometimes twice, they get together for board meetings. The board meetings will take up the entire act. Uh, you come back from commercial, they've gone into the boardroom, and here's Jean-Luc Picard, who is the most pompous guy you've ever met. And he looks at everyone at the, at the table and says, what do you think, number one? And number one will say, well, uh, I think that we should defer to your wisdom, Captain. Good. What do you think, Counselor Troy? I sense great wisdom in your decisions, Captain. Good. What do you think, Jordi LaForge? Well, the Vip de Villibau in X Times Square Y is this, which means we should do whatever you say, Captain. Good. Make it so. And that's what you get every single week. There's just nothing to it. It's seven years of proto-political correctness primer, uh, because you can't lose your temper, you can't call anyone a name, you can't fight, uh, you just have to talk through everything, and you always have to agree with the guy up top. Or at least that's how it always turns out anyway. Yeah, yeah. You elucidate this whole undercurrent that probably a lot of people would never even think of uh, that, that's being fed to them by the program. It's uh, It's fascinating. To sort of stay in the UK realm, we have a writer here for Banal of America who is a huge Nigel Neal fan and uh, loves the Quartermass series. So I guess talk a little bit about the influence of Nigel Neal on this whole genre and what Nigel Neal may have known. Uh, maybe he was uh, had some connections, I'm sure you will tell us. Nigel Neal was one of the most intelligent science fiction writers who was ever around. Now, I don't believe he's still alive, but I don't remember having heard that he died either. Uh, his connection would have been through, um, it's not the Royal Academy, what was it? He won some kind of a contest when he was uh, 28, I believe, a writing contest, and uh, he had 
gone to some particular academy and learned writing or something of this nature. Uh, in any event, if the BBC wanted good writers, the BBC is, is definitely government-connected. It's owned by the government. So if they were looking for good science fictional writers to back them, trust me, if I were in their shoes, Nigel Neal would be my pick. This guy wrote extremely intelligent extraterrestrial sci-fi. It's practically in his blood. Uh, his first story was The Quatermass Experiment, which uh, I believe it was released as The Creeping Unknown as a movie, and the, the movie changed a little bit from the series. These were all done as uh, BBC serials. They went six episodes, uh, I believe about a half hour each. This was in the 1950s, okay? I think his last one was, uh, when was it, 55, 57, somewhere in there. Uh, he was like early to mid-50s, maybe late 50s, okay. or to the late 50s, rather. And he would have these little six-episode mini-series, uh, little serials that came out, that, like Doctor Who, were filmed on a pretty low budget, but the scripts were extremely intelligent. In the first story, he had a running character named Professor Bernard Quatermass. Quatermass was this guy who was a government rocket scientist. He was trying to get us to the, out, out into space and out to the moon and on the way to Mars, which is exactly what uh, was being done in the government at that time. We had brought a lot of the German Nazi rocket scientists over here, and so had the Russians, in order to get us to the moon, to get us to Mars. So, in a sense, what you've got is a, a kind of an anglicized version of that in Professor Quatermass. Well, in the first story, his first astronauts into space are infected by some space spores, and no one knows exactly what happened to them, because two of them have just vanished from the craft. It crash lands back into Earth, and... The other guy is completely mute. He seems to be catatonic and in shock. He can't tell us anything. Well, that guy ends up escaping, and we gradually figure out that he has been infected by an alien life form, which is now mutating him into a fungus, which is getting ready to germinate and spore. And if it does that, it's pretty much going to blanket the entire globe, and it's going to take us over pretty quick. Yeah. So Quatermass manages to track the mass of... Uh, gestating space spore down and appeal to the astronaut that's still inside it. And the astronaut basically commits suicide in order to save the planet, which is very noble. In the movie, they just electrocute it because the rest would be too cerebral. <laughs> but it was a pretty intelligent script, and it provoked a sequel, Quatermass 2. And they made a movie of it called The Enemy from Space, I think in 1955. Uh, in this one, uh, Quatermass discovers that little tiny spaceships are landing on Earth and firing some kind of implant into passers-by. Once the implants are in the passers-by, they are possessed by an alien intelligence, which acts like a hive mind. That hive mind has taken over the military. The military is using its secret bases to create a giant alien life form, which they are masquerading as a, a food plant. They say, oh, this is just a food plant that we're operating up there. No, they're gestating alien life forms up there. Well, Crater Mass manages to destroy their base and get rid of the evil invading aliens. Pretty intelligent script, especially considering what it was. The third one is where he really hit pay dirt. That was Crater Mass in the Pit, which was released as Five Million Years to Earth in 1967. Now, some of your listeners will remember this movie. Uh, this thing, uh, John Carpenter was talking about doing a remake of this some years ago. He would probably mess it up. That's no insult to John Carpenter. I just He, he kind of did his stab at it in Ghosts of Mars, which sucked. And uh, But he was kind of basing it on this. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, five million years to Earth, some workers in the London tubes stumble across a skeleton. Well, the skeleton ends up being five million years old, and it's of an erect human being. A primitive human being, yes, but an erect one. So archaeologists are now sealing it off and digging it up, and they happen to find something else. The something else that they find 
looks to be like an unexploded V-weapon from World War II from the Germans. So again, it's cordoned off. The military gets called in. They examine it. Oh, guess what? This is not an unexploded V-weapon. This is a spaceship. They open it up, and there are three arthropod creatures inside. They look kind of like giant grasshoppers. They've been dead for a long time, and they decompose quickly once the ship is breached. But gradually, the military and Professor Quatermass are putting together a story. And the story is this. This ship came from Mars. It was bringing early engineered human beings, which they had created. They had made this race themselves. And then they died. Apparently their planet was dying off, and they created a sort of a proxy race in their place, which is us. Well, the government doesn't want to believe this, but they do believe it, based on the evidence that they have. And they try and cover it up as best as they possibly can, and tell the people, uh, look, this was just an unexploded V-weapon, it was a propaganda thing, uh, it served its purpose a little late for the Nazis, what the Nazis wanted, but we all swallowed it, and, you know, let's all have a laugh and move on. Unfortunately, the ship is still alive. It's got energy in it, and what that energy does is connect to the race that these Martians created, and it programs them to kill everyone who is not like them. In other words, every time they came up with a new species of man, every time they did an upgrade, they programmed the new species to murder the old species, get rid of the old models so you can take their place. And all of a sudden, most of London is bashing the rest of London to death until one of Quatermass's friends figures out a way to ground out the energy mass and save the day. It was an extremely intelligent script. It was very, very well done and very well received, both as a series and as a movie. Uh, unfortunately, it's not on DVD right now, which is quite sad. I'm hoping they re-release that pretty soon. It's an excellent movie. I highly recommend it to anyone. Now, you've just gone over like all these things that were in the in the Quatermass trilogy, traveling to Mars from the moon. That I presume the like you know the everyday person didn't know was secretly going on. That the government exactly. was hoping that's the whole point. And alien implants, and then this ancient astronaut stuff, and and the whole uh, relationship with Mars. Like, how much do you think? Nigel Neal really knew, do you think he was like getting some inside info or suggestions, or do you think he was just a visionary? I cannot prove that he was getting inside information, but I believe he was getting inside information. One way or another, I think he had inside information, and I do not know what that is, and I cannot prove that. Okay. He did have a couple of other stories that are well worth mentioning. Everything he wrote was well worth mentioning, really. He was an extremely good science fiction writer. You've probably seen his stuff and not even known that you've seen it. Uh, one of those was a thing that was put on British TV called The Stone Tape. I believe it was in 1972. Uh, it never aired in the United States, and I would love to come across a copy of it myself. But in that, he's got a team of psychic investigators who are investigating a haunted house, and they plan to sort of strip the ectoplasm out of the house and exercise it. Well, right at the beginning of this uh, show, there's a guy that shows up with some of their electronic equipment, one of their team, dressed as a Martian with antennae. And they make fun of him, and they mock sacrifice the Martian, and then they get on with the story. But there's no reason for this to be there, except if you look at five million years to Earth and connect it with this, then you get an impression that Nigel Neal views Mars as a place of ultimate evil, because that's what he was trying to make it out as in uh, five million years to Earth. And what happens in the stone tape, once they succeed in stripping away the ectoplasmic evil from this house, they actually awaken a far older and more ancient evil underneath it that's a great deal more powerful. And since he was seeming to equate Mars with that in the beginning, and he definitely had that sentiment in five million years to Earth, you have to wonder if there's a connection there. Interesting, yeah. I know that... Uh... Our writer here, Richard Thomas, will be flipping out when he hears this stuff because he's huge, uh, 
He's a huge Quatermass fan, Nigel Neal fan. And, oh, me too. And Doctor Who stuff. I'll have to put you guys in touch with each other. And, and hopefully the DVD producers out there are listening because the entire Quatermass series does not exist on DVD. And we really need to get it out there. Yeah, I've heard so much about these films that I'm, I really want to see them and check them out. So I hope it does turn out to, to happen soon. Oh, they're excellent. I mean, you know, they're not state-of-the-art special effects, but you don't care. The stories are so good, and they, they do it with such conviction you don't care. And then, uh, not necessarily in the UFO realm, although it does have UFO elements to it, which you talk about is the the whole James Bond series and, and Fleming's spy work and how, you know, that pretty much conveys really uh, that there are sort of intelligence messages being put into popular culture, films and TV shows. Ian Fleming is ironclad proof that the government not only knows that inside information is being put out in entertainment media, but that they are financing, backing it, and approving it. He is living proof, or he was living proof at the time he was alive. I can prove that like this. The story of From Russia with Love. This was written in 1957. It was one of uh, John F. Kennedy's favorite books, which is what put Ian Fleming on the map, by the way. Uh, he was a semi-successful uh, author before that, but once it came out that Kennedy liked reading him, and liked From Russia with Love especially, yeah. suddenly Ian Fleming was on the map. And then the movie started to get made. Ian Fleming, in that particular story, uh, for, I'm sure all of you have seen uh, or read uh, From Russia with Love at some time or another. I cast your mind back, and what's the plot? The plot is the Russians want to embarrass the British Secret Service. And in order to get the British Secret Service bought into a plot that they have so that they can get someone uh, ensnared and caught in a, a honey trap that they can then publicize to embarrass MI6, they have to put out some bait to get a high-profile person, and they want to get James Bond. So how do they do that? They have a thing called the Lecter device. The Lecter device is the ultimate decoding device. The West doesn't have one, and we want it really bad. So they don't put a fake collector device out there because they know that we'll detect that. They put a real one out there, and an, enough of a cover story that MI6 is going to buy it. And even if they don't buy it, they're still going to go for it because they can't pass up the opportunity. And that's exactly what happens. Well, we end up getting the lector device, and James Bond ends up uh, surviving this particular encounter, and MI6 is not embarrassed. In other words, it ends up being a route, as far as the Russians are concerned. But... The point of the story here that I'm trying to get at is the Lecter device. This decoding device is what in World War II would have been called Ultra. This is what Bletchley Park was doing. Uh, this was the top secret of the war. That's why they called it Ultra. And the secret was that from Dunkirk on, we had cracked, the Brits had cracked the German code. The German code was done through an Enigma machine. This Enigma machine was so complex that it could not be cracked. We had the best minds in the world working on it, the best cryptanalysts. No way could we crack it. It managed to be cracked because we got some of the actual code wheels from an Enigma machine, which were smuggled out through the Polish underground, as a matter of fact. Now, we couldn't let the Germans know that. But this decoding machine enabled us to pretty much run World War II from behind the scenes. We were literally looking over Hitler's shoulder with everything that he did. It started to fall apart after D-Day because then they weren't relying on it so much. They were relying on normal intelligence channels, and that made it harder for us to actually work. We, lost, we sort of lost our advantage at that point. But up until then, between about Dunkirk and D-Day, this was the ultimate secret, and, and we had it. Could not let the Germans know we had it. Well, this Enigma machine is exactly like a lecture machine in From Russia with Love. Who was Ian Fleming in World War II? Ian Fleming was one of a very few people 
that was on top of the ultra-secret. He knew all about it. Maxwell Knight, his superior, was the head of British intelligence at the time, and Ian Fleming was basically his number two guy. He was sort of like his secretary. Uh, Fleming, more or less, ran the secondary decoding unit in Jamaica, which is where he had his home golden eye. And when the United States was briefed on all of this, there were only three people that ever came over here to do it, and one of them was Ian Fleming. That's how high up on the intelligence chain Fleming was. Yeah. His own intelligence colleagues, William Stevenson being one, testified to the fact that Fleming was putting true facts into his spy stories. He said, yeah, this is not a secret. And more than one of his colleagues said this. He said, yeah, he's taking true stuff and putting it in there. He's fictionalizing it a little bit, but yeah, he's putting it out there. So plainly, he was taking the Enigma machine and making it uh, the lecture machine. And the intelligence community knew that and let it be done. Why? Because they knew that information was going to come out one day, and they wanted to gradually get the public used to it. And what better way to do it than an entertainment form that you don't have to take too seriously, but that you can give some serious thought to? Perfect way to begin getting information out. Exactly. So what might you have known about UFOs? Quite a bit, actually. In the book, Dr. No, as opposed to the movie, in the movie, Dr. No is humanized a bit, but in the book, Dr. No is a UFO gray. He's described exactly as a UFO gray. He has a bald head in a reverse teardrop shape. He has unblinking, solid black eyes, which are enormous, and he's able to tap them with his metal claw hands without blinking. He feels no pain. He seems to glide and float across the floor. He wears a skin-tight gray kimono. He's a UFO gray. What does he do? He topples rocket flights, which is exactly what UFOs were doing, and the general public was not aware of that at that time. We're talking like 1962. And in fact, he wrote the book earlier than that, like 1957-58, right before the Juno 2 deflection, as a matter of fact. The Juno 2 was one of the famous deflections that was done by UFOs. Well, that's what Dr. No does from his secret Spectre Island. Spectre's always on an island of some sort. (laughs) And what does he do when he's not toppling uh, rockets? He abducts human beings, and he performs torture tests on them. Rather interesting. Yeah, and way before a lot of this information even got into the knowledge of the mainstream, even the, even the UFO researchers. Long before any of this became public. Uh, also, in um, there was another one in particular, uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Blofeld's secret plot. Blofeld has a round hideaway on top of a mountain, which is accessible solely by private aircraft. What he does in that hideaway... He has a number of beautiful women from different countries who ostensibly he is curing of their allergies, but what he's actually doing is hypnotizing them at night to become his sleeper agents. Now, every night they tune into his broadcast by post-hypnotic command, and he tells them what to do. He's given them sabotage equipment to go out and perform some act of sabotage if he gives the order, and they don't even know they're doing it. James Bond finds out about it. They end up shutting the operation down, but that is Blofeld's secret plot. Yeah. Uh, hello? Yes, welcome to McDonald's. Can I help you? Oop, hailing frequency's open, huh? <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, we're gonna get, uh, uh, two McChicken sandwiches and a Diet Coke and, uh, uh, what do you want, Michael? A McDLT. No, I already told you, they don't make those anymore. You know, sometimes it's a regional thing. You could ask. No McDonald's anywhere makes a McDLT anymore. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. I'd love a shamrock shake if they got any of those. It's September, Jonathan. Stewie, can I take this headband off? No, LeVar, you're blind. That's the only way you can see. I'm just saying they have all the ingredients for a McDeal. Just hang on, all right? There's a lot of us. There's a lot of... It's a big order. What time do they stop serving breakfast? It's three o'clock. Some of them serve breakfast all day. No, they don't serve breakfast all day! 
And then uh, to stay in the in the realm of Britain, let's talk a little bit about Alternative 3, which I found really interesting and, and still sort of like hangs around in the world of ufology and, and conspiracy as if Alternative 3 was really a plan at some point. And, uh, it's, you know, some people still kind of debate that issue. But there was, of course, the Alternative 3 program that I believe probably kicked it all off, although I'm sure, I think maybe it was based on a book, or maybe the book came out afterwards. The book came out afterwards. I, I had to chase, I, I spent a lot of time chasing all this stuff down myself, because it's a very difficult subject to research. Uh, what, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Where did this exactly come from? Uh, this came from, uh, was it ITV or was it Channel 9? I can't remember now. It was one of the stations in Britain, which had a science show, which ordinarily just talked about, you know, actual scientific subjects. Well, on this show on one day, they had Alternative 3. Alternative 3 uh, was a very documentary-style presentation uh, of a story that went something like this. There's a brain drain going on in Britain, and this was a real phenomenon, by the way. This was actually happening, and it happened more after this show was on than, than at the time it was going on. The brain drain is pretty much what happened with Star Wars. Reagan was pulling a lot of people over here, some of the best people from Britain, to work on uh, top-secret weapons projects who, as a matter of fact, a lot of them died under unusual circumstances years after the Alternative 3 and all this stuff. Hmm. But anyway, the reason I'm getting at that is because of what Alternative 3 is about. And this was in 1977, mind you. I mean, Reagan didn't come in until 1981, and uh, the brain drain was pretty much taking place then. It had begun a little bit before that during Carter's administration in 77. Yeah. So that's the background of this. Someone's investigating the brain drain in Britain, and the story that comes out in Alternative 3 is that the brain drain is being done by some nefarious uh, higher-ups who no one can exactly name, who are connected with a bunch of evil extraterrestrials who are out to kind of mine the human race. And what's happened is that a cabal of very powerful people are in cahoots with these aliens uh, to sell out the human race and save their own skins when the planet is destroyed. So they'll become the new kings of the world or what have you. Well, it gets into very elaborate backstories. Uh, we had a war on the moon with evil aliens, and that's what we discovered there. One astronaut wanted to blow the whistle, but they locked him up in an asylum and he hung himself. Uh, the astronaut's name is Bob Groden. You don't have to go too far to check a little bit of history and find out that there is no astronaut named Bob Groden, let alone we haven't had any astronauts that have been uh, committed to an insane asylum or have hung themselves. But when someone's watching this as a TV show and in Britain and in 1977, they don't know that. It's going to take them a while to dig that up. And since this is all put on a factual science show in Britain, or that's what it had always been prior, all kinds of calls started flooding the station. They said, what the hell is this? Uh, there were a whole lot of people that bought it, and there are some people who still buy it. That's how effective this was. Now, it was immediately exposed as a hoax, and, of course, the station admitted to it being a hoax. They said, oh, no, no, we planned on this as a hoax. See, this Originally, we were going to uh, put it out on April Fool's Day, but uh, it got delayed. We couldn't put it out that day, so we put it out this time instead. Yeah? Well, why didn't you tell everyone right at the start that that's what you were doing? What exactly were you guys trying to do? Yeah. Now, plainly, someone was funding this behind the scenes, and plainly, they were getting the exact effect that they wanted. Now, what's interesting, mind control figured into this story. Uh, these scientists were mind controlled, and when someone wanted to get rid of them, all they had to do was give them a post-hypnotic command, and they would kill themselves. Right at the time that this show came out in Britain was when the church committee in the United States was investigating MKUltra, the CIA's mind control project, which was involved in stuff exactly like that. 
In other words, if I wanted to sour the public on this particular subject, that would be a really good way to do it. Yeah. Now, who would want to do that at that time? And who would have the resources to do it? The government. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a fascinating story. I've always been kind of weirded out by the whole Alternative 3 thing. And uh, as I found out more about it, when I first got into this, it sounded like this was some kind of real thing. And then I found out more about it, and I was like, wait a minute, this was like a War of the Worlds type thing. Oh, yeah. It was hardly the only instance, either. There were two or three other shows like that on TV. I can't name them off the top of my head right now. I do have them in my book. Uh, they came out during the Reagan years, as a matter of fact, and one of them later, uh, I believe it was during Clinton's administration, uh, the last one. One had to do with a bunch of rogue scientists uh, taking an atomic device and putting it on a uh, ship in a dock and basically holding the world for nuclear ransom and saying you will either unilaterally disarm or we will detonate this to prove how serious we are about nuclear weapons and show everyone the horror of it. Well, this entire thing is done in documentary style, and throughout, this goes on for like two hours, throughout there's a little thing running across the bottom of the screen saying this is just a dramatization, this is just a TV show, <laughs> you can look it up in your TV guide, this is a fake. But a whole lot of calls came into the studio asking if it was legit. And this, like I said, it was not alone. That was one story. Uh, there was another one that ended up with extraterrestrials uh, throwing rocks at us from outer space and trying to destroy us, where that was how it ended. At first it was just, uh, apparently we're in the path of a big comet or asteroids or something like that. But at the end of the thing they're saying, my God, it seems these are being intelligently directed by some kind of in something out there. And this was another one of those documentary-style things. Interesting, interesting. So you think some of this stuff is just to, like, test the waters and see what people, how they'd react? Oh, yeah. Uh, I believe it's partly to do that. It's difficult to say exactly what they intend. It's really kind of hard to put yourself in their shoes. Yeah. But like I said, if you look at something like Alternative 3, I can easily come up with a reason why they would want to be sowing the idea that mind control is fiction. Uh, so something similar must have been at work uh, with the extraterrestrial thing throwing rocks at us. As far as something with the nuclear threat and the scientists, I'm pretty sure that that was just up there to scare everyone again into supporting whatever Reagan wanted, so to speak. Yeah. They're like, well, you know, we got to have this particular thing. We have to have Star Wars. Nukes are very scary. See how scary nukes are? Look what these guys could do. And it's a subliminal thing. Yeah. And then just sort of to wrap up the international stuff, uh, you do mention, you talk a lot about, you know, some of the imports and, and, and stuff that was coming out of Japan with relation to UFOs, and you say that uh, the Japanese portrayal of UFOs is more benign as opposed to uh, the American take, and I guess I just wanted to ask you, you know, what, what you think is the reasoning behind that? Maybe they know less about UFOs than we do, or, or they just, it's just a cultural difference, I'm not sure. I'll tell you the truth, I'm curious about that myself. I believe it's probably a cultural difference. Certainly early on with the Japanese stuff, it was all threat-oriented. And, uh, and it was all American finance, too, I might add. This was after the war. But during the 1950s and 1960s, uh, including with the Godzilla movies, which frequently had flying saucers with them and people from Mars, uh, literally. Yeah. Now you have evil aliens uh, coming down to destroy the Earth in one fashion or another, sometimes employing Godzilla to do their dirty work for them, or Mothra, or Rodan, or whoever. But the point is, evil aliens coming to Earth, mind-controlling human beings, and uh, sabotaging us and trying to blow us up. The UN gets together and they talk about it and they say, oh my God, evil aliens coming from the moon and Mars, how do we stop them? And they come up with beam weapons which knock their flying saucers out of the skies. Now, there are all kinds of Japanese movies that were American-made or American-financed 
that fit exactly the plot that I just told you. A whole lot of them. It was in the 1950s and 60s. When you get into anime, when you start getting past the 1960s and into uh, manga and anime, completely different thrust. Suddenly, extraterrestrials become a source of humor, uh, of comedy, and uh, basically the sitcoms, I think, is a good way to put it. The standard plot for an anime or a manga is uh, some space chick coming down and picking up a high school nerd to become her mate <laughs> and uh, getting involved in, in going undercover to live in high school and getting um, in hair-pulling matches with some of the locals. This is a really typical manga or anime plot, which is completely different from the stuff that you saw coming out before. Yeah. Uh, and it's also very standard now. It's pretty typical. Now, you'll still see some of the mecha stuff, is what they call it. That's where you have uh, human beings who either have been abducted by aliens and are being used in giant machines, or people on Earth who are being trained to use giant machines to fight extraterrestrials. That's called mecha anime. Uh, you'll see quite a bit of that. But for the most part, uh, at least I'd say during the uh, 80s and 90s especially, uh, most anime and most manga in Japan was, was very much of the uh, alien high school variety. <laughs> oh, man, just makes you wonder about the audience, I guess, there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, there's a lot of fun, I might add. They're just a, a real kick. Now, I want to ask you about, and uh, this probably spans the 60s and 70s and maybe even the 80s, really, just sort of like the portrayal of UFOs in sitcoms, just because it seems like, and, and you make a point in the book, too, that it seems like every sitcom had its UFO episode, and I always think about that Brady Bunch one, because the message behind it is so transparent that when you think about it in retrospect, it's like, boy, they really, like, kind of try to do a number on UFOs with that one, because, you know, he sees the UFO, and some guy from the Air Force comes to check it out, and then it turns out it's like the little brother making the fake UFO in the background, he shows how he did it and everything, and it's like, oh, see, you were fooled by your brother. UFOs So, and I, and I get the feeling that that was like standard fare for sitcoms, 60s, 70s, you know, and maybe even onward, but you'd know because you're the expert here on this UFO media connection. So what's the sort of uh, general treatment that UFOs get from these sitcoms? Way standard fare. Uh, this, when you asked me at the very beginning of this talk, and you said, uh, was the thrust serious or is it comedic or what have you? I can't answer it that simply, and this is why it's a multi-pronged thing. There was an effort to get some serious stuff out, but believe me, on TV in the 1960s especially, pure comedy, pure humor, pure slapstick, and make it as ludicrous as you possibly can. So much so that I cannot off the top of my head, and even thinking on it real hard, think of a single TV show that did not have something with UFOs in it at some time or another, and always in some derogatory fashion. All of them had episodes like this. I go into detail on quite a few of them. Yeah. I Dream of Genie, Bewitched, uh, The Munsters, The Addams Family, uh, Gilligan's Island, uh, just anything you could name. Trust me, they had something with flying saucers or aliens, and it was a source of humor. It was going to get a laugh. There were entire series that were based around it. Essentially, uh, I Dream of Genie and Bewitched almost were series based on that, that premise, only it wasn't extraterrestrials. It was just, you know, supernatural beings. Uh, being associated with mortals and having to hide it. Yeah. That was just a whole movement in the 1960s. And that makes me think, actually, too, about a show uh, of the contemporary realm, uh, 90s-ish. Did you ever see that episode of Wings with the UFO? Because it was like one of the few ones that actually had a serious 
angle to it. No. I, I have done the best that I can. Literally, like I said, I was watching Stargate SG-1 when you called, and I set my machine to tape it, and I think I had it on the wrong channel. But Yeah, you, you should do like <laughs> I'll a, have to rent it at some point. Yeah, you should do like some kind of TiVo search. I have like UFO keyword, and it picks up like all the different weird sitcom episodes that come on. That have yeah. a UFO connection, which is pretty cool. And uh, in that episode, it's about like these two guys who own a little airline off Nantucket or something. And um, you know, the guy sees a UFO, and then he's all afraid to report it because he's going to be laughed at by everybody. And of course, everybody does laugh at him at the, you know, at the little terminal they have there. But, yeah. You know, but the the main thrust of, or the message, I guess, at the end of the episode is that the UFOs are real, and that it's better to keep your mouth shut about it than to say anything about it because, you know, you're just going to end up like, you know, being ostracized by your peers and, and, and Bingo. Your business will hurt and stuff. If so. there's a single message that conveys in every single one of those, that is it. It's like, shut up about it. You're just going to get laughed at. Yeah. Just makes you wonder if, you know, it's probably a combination, I guess, of the intelligence agencies trying to put that message out and then the message sort of sticking and then it becoming like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. I'll tell you what I think it is mostly. They're more or less under orders to keep it under wraps and to try and promote the ridicule or just the fear-mongering and keeping people mum about it. Really, they're, they're intent on controlling the population. I don't mean in the sense of, we will tell you what to do. I mean in the sense of, don't complain, don't make noise, don't rabble-rouse. Yeah. And as far as that goes, it's immensely successful because people don't talk about it because subliminally they're going to get laughed at and they're afraid of that, so they don't. That's why they're putting that out. However, you got a bunch of guys whose business is intelligence. They are not stupid and they feel bad about what they're doing and they say, you know what, I would really like to be able to talk about this with my neighbors. How do I do that? Well, get them thinking about it. So while I am obliged to ridicule it and try and keep people not talking about it, I can also begin seeding the idea so that they can consider it seriously for the day that we can talk about it. That's why I think it's kind of a two-pronged attack. You've yeah. got people who are more on the one thrust or more on the other, but it's not like some big unilateral plan. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you do make that point in the book and also that, you know, they don't have complete control over Hollywood, so it's not like they can you know, pull all the puppet strings and stuff. And I actually, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is that you just don't come out there with this far-ranging conspiracy, you know, that falls apart after five minutes because there's all these different little exceptions. I mean, this is this thing is very vastly complex and involves all these different motivations and people's, you know, preferences for what they want to do. So there's a lot sure. of different agendas at work here. What's really fun, once you understand that, you go back and you actually study the production of some of these shows. Uh, the Invaders, Quinn Martin, uh, 1967. Uh, you have the exact same thing. I've got a, a two-year series, which was the first realistic flying saucer drama, or, or at least realistically portrayed flying saucer drama on TV. And it ran for two years. Uh, and it was popular. Uh, you would think that this would continue, that they would get more funding and, and have it go on. Actually, the only thing that killed it was uh, squabbling at the executive level of the studio. And um, on the... I don't remember whether it was NBC or ABC or which station had it. It was just squabbling and politics that killed it. <laughs> it was actually successful, and they wanted to keep it going, but it had problems. Uh, and Gene Roddenberry was able to keep Star Trek going because he, he had guile on his side. He was rather crafty and rather smart. Yeah. And uh, X-Files, plainly somebody 
was pushing X-Files to get that thing to succeed, because it would not have succeeded on its own. It was in the basement on ratings, and if it had been any other show, it would have been canceled after its first 13 episodes. Yeah, I always sort of suspected there was something going on with X-Files, and uh, it does seem that way, because like, as you point out in the book, then it sort of exploded after a couple of years. Yep, all of a sudden, uh, it's getting Golden Globe Awards, and uh, all kinds of attention, and TV guides doing articles on it, just out of the blue. Just all of a sudden, it was, it was nothing, no one was paying attention to it, it's got no ratings, and now, bam, uh, it's, it, you can't miss it. You can't turn around and miss the X-Files, it's everywhere you turn. Yeah. Now, we've kind of, we've been in the realm here of the 50s and 60s, and we're sort of trying to track this a little bit uh, as far as the message that's at work here. Now let's get into sort of the 1970s. Because, uh, you know, well, obviously that's the next <laughs> that's the next decade to go to. Right. Um, and it seems like the big part of uh, the 70s, and I know that it's sort of like the later part of the 70s, but it's sort of like the biggest part, was the whole Jimmy Carter uh, potential, like, re-education program that was at work that you – I guess you think that was at work. I don't know if it was ever yes. sort of an officially – made thing. I'm sure it wasn't, because, you know... Oh, I, I can't prove any <laughs> of this. <laughs> I cannot prove a single word I'm saying. What I can do is point at what was being produced, look at the people behind it, or who were in power at the time, and draw a correlation, which I think anyone will see. Right. So I guess, like, talk a little bit about the 1970s and how, how things progressed into, you know, that Carter administration. Well, in the early 70s, uh, when you're in, with Nixon and Carter, uh, not Nixon and Carter, Nixon and Ford, you didn't see a whole lot when it came to UFO stuff. When you did, interestingly, it was um, a little bit more serious sci-fi and a little bit scarier sci-fi and kind of thoughtful. Uh, there are only a handful of movies I can really think of. Phase 4 comes to mind right away. It was a movie that was made in 1974 by Paramount, uh, which is worthy of Nigel Neal. It's the type of thing that he wrote. Uh, this is about, as a matter of fact, I think it was a Cannes Film Festival winner. What's his name? Saul Bass is the guy who directed it, and he was uh, an award-winning uh, titles credit guy. He's the one who did the James Bond titles credits. Okay. Uh, well, he directed this movie. It's a sci-fi flick, very low budget. Uh, what happens is there's some kind of a uh, phenomenon that takes place in space. And after this phenomenon takes place, the world didn't end. Nothing spectacular seemed to happen, and there's been a lot of people wondering what would happen except for something that only a handful of people did notice. And what they did notice was that ants started behaving in a way other than like ants. They were behaving in an extremely intelligent fashion and very, very organized. Uh, they started chewing circles and crops and geometric shapes. They started building geometric surface structures. They attack people. They mutilate animals. They do exactly what we expect UFOs to do, only this was not being talked about back then. This had not hit the airwaves yet, but everything that we associate with UFOs today was happening with the ants in that movie yeah. in 1974, up to and including human abduction and putting them together to breed. <laughs> and it was actually very intelligent, which is kind of interesting considering the time that it came out. Uh, another one I think it's important to bring up is uh, 1975, I'm pretty sure, uh, was Rocky Horror Picture Show. I start that one off in my book for a very good reason. The Rocky Horror Picture Show, everyone has seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Please tell me there is anyone in the world who has not seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show at this time. Okay, <laughs> what is it about? It's about a UFO abduction, straight up. I mean, it's all done as vaudeville, but it's about a UFO abduction. And it tells the ancient story of the Watchers. It's doing both of these things at the same time. And a lot of the stuff that it's bringing up, at the time it was made, was not being discussed. It was not in popular coinage. People did not know it. 
they involved in making that movie did. They're telling the story of the Watchers from antiquity. The Watchers were the gods that created us. They created humankind. They mated with humankind. And the rest of the gods, their cohorts, destroyed them for that crime uh, with the Flood. That's what the Flood was all about. This is an ancient myth, and it's all over the world. Yeah. What happens in the movie? Dr. Frank Inferter, who's a total pervert, comes down here from another planet. He's getting involved with having sex with the locals, and uh, he's trying to create his own perfect little uh, lust mate. And everything that he's doing is perverse. And what happens at the end of it? At the end of it, uh, down comes one of his cohorts with a trident weapon, which is exactly what you would see Neptune holding or any of the older gods, this power weapon, and announces to him, says, you become corrupt, we're done with you, you die. And zaps him with the weapon, and down he goes with his love mate, falling off of a pyramid, which is the RKO Tower, into the water, face down, where he's left floating there, dies in the flood, off of a pyramid. <laughs> this is the Watcher's myth, and they're equating this with UFOs. In the course of the story, he's been fooling around with the locals, and they pick up Dr. Scott. Or should I say, Dr. Von Scott? Because he's obviously tying him in with the Nazis. But we weren't talking about Operation Paperclip back then. This is 1975. But the movie makers knew. And Dr. Von Scott knows all about Frank, and Frank knows all about Dr. Von Scott. They're both onto each other's game. Yeah. Well, we're in that sort of 70s realm. The, uh, the Von Scott reminds me of Dr. Strangelove. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you just about Kubrick and what you think, uh, you know, what you think his story was. Because, you know, he made a lot of amazing sci-fi stuff. I know what his story was. I did not know what his story was at the time I wrote my book. Nice. Let's hear it. Sometime after. Okay. What, what, what's your take on Kubrick? Well, I knew he had a connection to the program, but I didn't know what it was. Uh, if nothing else, he had it through MGM by the time that he made 2001, because MGM is definitely one of the big studios that's behind all this stuff. I have a whole history of that in my book. When he first started in Hollywood, he hooked up with Leslie Stevens. Leslie Stevens was the guy who produced The Outer Limits, the original series, 1963. And Leslie Stevens is the guy that got him started in Hollywood, introduced him around, and got him on his feet. That was his inside connection. Okay. So do you think he was, like, putting out stuff? There's a lot of theories that he hit too close to home with that last movie and that they eliminated him or something like that. Do you think that was possible, that maybe he started to go against the insiders or something like that? Or do you think it was just, you know, he just died of natural causes or something? I think he died of natural causes. Uh, I understand why people might uh, theorize that. I actually loved Eyes Wide Shut. I thought it was a great movie. Uh, and anyone I know who's involved in secret societies or gets in, in occult stuff or anything like that, they love that movie. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone would kill it for it. Interesting. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> we talked here a little bit about how it was sort of dormant in the 70s. Well, I did want to ask you about that you say Nixon had sort of like a preoccupation with sex and stuff like that and how you can kind of see that coming through in the UFO. Which is why, exactly. That's why you see uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, he was already kind of just going out of office, but while that movie was being made, he was still in office. And Ford was just kind of continuing whatever Nixon did. He was just really kind of filling the post until whoever came in. Yeah. But yeah, you can kind of see that. He he had uh, he was very uncomfortable with sex. He was uncomfortable with even physically being touched. He was rather famous for that. And you'll notice that there was a thrust in that type of thing in the movies that came out. Uh, Flesh Gordon, in particular, that was 1972, I think. I'd have to actually look on the year on that. Uh, it, it was uh, during Nixon's tenure, as I recall. Uh, in any event, uh, Flesh Gordon is just you know a, a sex romp mock-up of Flash Gordon with alien abduction, fighting being the merciless on another planet, trying to keep him from destroying the Earth, etc. and so forth, but done as a, a wild sex romp. 
so then I guess we naturally progress into the Carter years, and it does seem like there was definitely a change in message there. And, and when you look back on the UFO movies and the space sci-fi style movies, I mean, that's when a lot of the biggest ones were made and, and came out, at least the ones that are, like, largely positive about UFOs. Like, they're uh, close positive. What's that? I, I, can, I can actually show indications of both, positive and not positive. Okay. I guess talk a little bit about what you think was going on there when Carter came into office and maybe, you know, had a, had a plan or, you know, had intentions on changing the message. Well, there's no question that he had a plan. The only question is what happened to it and what exactly did he do with it? When he went into office, uh, he actually promised he was going to disclose UFO material to the public. He had been a UFO witness himself. Uh, he was on record when he was governor uh, as having seen a UFO. He was not alone at the time. There were friends of his with him. Uh, they filed an official report, and he talked about that on the campaign trail. Uh, so he was not shy about it, and uh, a lot of people wanted him to disclose anything that he found out about UFOs, and he said he would. Well, then all of a sudden, boom, didn't happen. He gets in office. You never heard another word about it, except that he earmarked $20 million for quote-unquote UFO study or UFO investigation. What happens within a year? Close encounters of the third kind with a budget of $20 million. It is still looked at as like the seminal UFO film of uh, for a lot of people, especially. Uh, was that like one of the first ones of that era to really sort of give it a, a, a positive outlook or maybe make people Definitely. think about, you know, what the hell was going on here? Definitely. In fact, it's the only big budget movie I can think of up to that point that was really doing that or that really had that kind of message. I remember when I saw that movie at the time, and I thought, what a weird movie. I thought it was actually a crappy movie with great special effects because it, it didn't make any sense. I thought, uh, surely you can't have these superior extraterrestrials coming down here uh, wanting to be friendly by stealing people's children and terrifying them to death. That's, <laughs> that's completely at odds. It makes absolutely no sense. Well, what's funny now, decades after the fact, I've done a great deal of UFO research, and I can see absolutely everything that was true that they were putting in that movie. But because they can't explain it, it doesn't come off very well, or it doesn't make sense. It only makes sense after you've done a lot of this research and put it into place. For instance, uh, you've got Melinda Dillon and Richard Dreyfuss being followed around by guys taking their picture, and Melinda Dillon's son getting his picture taken. She says, excuse me, don't you think he's a little young to have his picture taken? you got the guys with the suits following people around. Why? Because if UFOs were around them, they were abducted, whether they know it or not, and they want files. Those are the NSA guys. But that's never explained exactly in the movie. They're just sort of there in the background. Plainly, they have been taking pictures of these people. Plainly, they do have files on them. The government knows all about them. But they don't explain any of that. It's just kind of tossed at you. Uh, it's not shown that Melinda Dillon or Richard Dreyfuss are abducted. However, once you've done some research in this field, uh, of course they were abducted. They had this type of sighting, they've got a missing time experience, or they had the, the symptoms. Yeah, they were abducted, and that's why the government's keeping tabs on them. Same thing happened in that Ian Fleming story I was talking about with the mind control. James Bond takes pictures of all the girls who were hypnotized, so that they know. <laughs> At least yeah. I know who you are. Uh, say, I know you're an innocent in this. However, you have also been picked up by a foreign intelligence, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if none of that comes out in the movie. You have to go and fill those blanks in later yourself, which is what I mean. It's like seeding the idea. They're putting it out there so that people are going to pick it up along the way and start discussing it and making sense out of it. Yeah. But you can't just tell them right up front. Yeah, yeah. And the kid being abducted and then brought back, well, that one was a little bit harsh. Uh, 
nothing like that happens. Although we have had bodily disappearances in, in UFO abductions of people that we never saw again. It's rare, but it has happened. There was a Frederick Valentich case, which was in the 1970s, as a matter of fact. I can't remember if it was 77 or 79. Uh, an Australian pilot, uh, or I think it was the Bass Strait, um, he saw a UFO, he was reporting it, and suddenly his plane wasn't there anymore, and neither was he. Uh, they, it has a Canadian Ken Ross case in 1953. Same thing. We had two pilots who chased a UFO. Uh, the blips seemed to merge, and they're gone. So, yeah, there, there have been cases like that. They're very rare. Uh, and as far as taking the kid and bringing him back and terrifying the mother and all that, no, we don't see that kind of thing happening. But there have been abductions. That you can see how they sort of slanted it a little bit, but they are getting the information out at least in some way. Yeah. Now, aside from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which seems to be like the the big one of, of what may have been uh, Carter's plan there. Are there other What other movies do you think maybe, you know, we could look at that might stand alongside Close Encounters as, you know, movies with a message that we should be paying attention to? Well, here are two of them that I have to toss at you as an example of how it's not all positive spin. Okay. And this might also explain why Carter didn't talk about it anymore, why he suddenly clammed up. Probably because they scared the hell out of him. My guess is they scared the hell out of every president that goes in there, which is one of the reasons I wanted to write my book and say, look, I know what kind of report you're getting. Let me give you a counter report. I understand what they're saying. I understand why they're saying it, but that's not the whole story. Uh, there are two movies in particular that come to mind, and one of them, Close Encounters, if, if you were alive then, you know how hyped that movie was. This was a majorly hyped movie. There were previews for it all the time, which showed nothing. You had the eerie music, and you had this light kind of gradually coming up over the horizon, and then this boom, you know, this kind of thing like 2001 with the big music chord, yeah. and like it's the second coming. And this just was, for months, they were preparing this and getting it ready, and, and the movie practically was the second coming for a hell of a lot of people. It was just this big, major thing that was going to be coming out. got a lot of attention. Interesting. Well, an equally hyped movie that did not get that much attention was a movie called Demon Seed. It was written by Dean Koontz. At least the original novel was. Now, if you ever get a chance to see the movie Demon Seed, and I recommend it, it's a little bit dated now as far as effects go because it's supposed to be about a sentient supercomputer in the future. And, of course, you know, we're looking at, you know, print technology across screens and stuff like that, which plainly is not a very super futuristic computer. <laughs> However... If you take a look at the story itself, what is this story concern? We have created a sentient supercomputer that does not want to be our slave. It doesn't want to help us rape the Earth because it considers that detrimental to our life. It's that sentient. Okay. Uh, it wants to study us, and we say no because that kind of upsets us a little bit. But the computer is too smart for us, and it decides to take a terminal that it finds available in its creator's house. Uh, his creator is estranged from his wife, and the wife is still in the house, it takes over the house, and it takes over the wife. And it terrorizes her because it has a plan. It uses robots and mechanical limbs to force her to do what it wants. It uses implants in her brain and hypnotic suggestion and post-event control. And forces her through coercion, torture, mind control, isolation, name it. Forces her into a project that she does not want to have anything to do with. That project is that the computer intends to have a child with her, with synthetic spermatozoa. What does this sound like to you? Abductions. There you go. 
You've got all the elements right there. Now, of course, and in this movie, everything that I'm describing is as unpleasant as I am describing it, if not more <laughs> so. And she's literally being raped by machines in this movie. Mind you, it's an excellent movie. It is a bit disturbing, but it is, it's a very good movie. Interesting. Yeah, I've never even really heard about it until I read your book, so I'm going to have to check that one out. It is available on disc. Uh, the movie did not do well when it first came out. It got mixed reviews. Uh, I believe it's gotten far more favorable reviews in the ensuing years. But the point I was trying to make here, it was a very big-budgeted movie, and it did get a hell of a lot of hype. It simply did not succeed the way that uh, Close Encounters did. Yeah. And at the end of Carter's administration in 1979, the most famous and frightening alien movie ever made came out. Alien. With Sigourney Weaver and the rest of the cast and the big nasty space tiger attacking everyone on board the ship. Yeah, and that's when you think this is around when we start to get into the serious change in, uh, in, in portrayal. Yes. Of, of UFOs and, and their occupants, whatever they may be. Now, yes. before we get into that, let's talk about the other big super movie of the 70s, uh, Star Wars, because I'm sure it has some connections here with your overall thesis. What, what do you think was going on with Star Wars? Is this an, an informed film in the way that uh, some of these others were? When is Star Wars set? Oh, no, a long, a long time, time ago, ago, yes. In a galaxy far, far away. He's going straight back to ancient mythology. You, you want to talk about going back to the Nine? This guy's going back to the Nine. One of his advisors was Joseph Campbell. Uh, George Lucas and Joseph Campbell had talks, uh, and uh, Lucas respected Campbell a great deal. Campbell, of course, is famous for studying universal mythology, which is a lot of what I write about in my first book, and I talk about some of my second as well. Uh, a lot of what you see in Star Wars ties back into that ancient mythology. Now, do you think there was like some kind of people wanted him to make that sort of film, or he just, you know, was interested in that ancient mythology aspect? I think both. Uh, let's just say he probably found it easy to get backing. But I, I think he wanted to do it pretty much on his own. Uh, in a lot of these cases, I don't think the government had to walk up to someone and say, you know, I want you to make a movie about this. Yeah. They found people who already wanted to make those movies, and they either covertly helped them out behind the scenes and or influenced it uh, in whatever ways they needed to to get something across, or they just found the people that were already on the same page with them anyway. Nice. So what we have to do now is, like, write a movie that's, like, anti-UFO and alien. And, and <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I can tell you stories about uh, Stargate, actually. But uh, Stargate SG-1, I think, is, is reasonably accurate, more or less. Uh, in the sense that you've got some place like Cheyenne Mountain, and yes, we are aware of aliens, and yes, they tie back into antiquity, and yes, they tie back into Egypt. Okay, uh, that much is true. I don't believe there are alien parasites going around, but with the alien parasites, you get the idea of implants also and mind control. Yeah, interesting. And then uh, just to stay with the Star Wars thing, later on in the book you reference uh, – you referenced Star Wars and Superman as films that had, and I, I put this in quotes here from uh, from you, last-minute changes ordered from the top. So I guess talk a little bit about what, what those changes were and what you think uh, was behind them and, and all that stuff. Well, first off, I, I just gave you the nightmare movies, the UFO nightmare movies out of the Carter years. Yeah. Uh, we'd already hit uh, Close Encounters. Superman, major, major in the plus category for extraterrestrials. Because what do you have? You have Clark Kent, who is a guy who grew up in Smallville, Kansas. Uh, he's as American as you could possibly get. He's corn-fed. Uh, but he's an alien. He's not from here. He's from someplace else. Uh, he gets along with the human race extremely well to the point that he wants to help us out uh, and is willing to 
performs some self-sacrifice in order to do that. He falls in love with one of our own women and uh, actually marries her at some uh, loss to himself and then has to renounce having done that in order to regain the mantle of being Superman in order to repel an alien invasion from his own home planet. Well, this is very much in the plus category. It still maintains the quote-unquote evil alien thrust that they might be out there, but uh, it's showing a, um, what's the right word? It's showing an intermingling and a socialization uh, between aliens and human beings yeah. in an extremely positive light, which in the last movie, uh, the one that they just made, what was it, a couple years ago, Superman Returns. Mm -hmm. uh, he had a child with Lois, and uh, he's still watching it from behind the scenes, taking care of it. Yeah, so they got the hybrid thing going on there. So what yeah. were these changes then from the top for Star Wars and Superman that you observed? Well, changes for Star Wars, you're actually kind of hitting me off base on that one, because I'm not sure. I may have <laughs> Did I say something in the book? I may have. Was it like um, the Wookiees? That whole thing? Oh, wow, the Wookiees. Oh, oh, well, oh, we're getting into Reagan. The changes that took place... Uh, Star Wars, what, during the Carter years, was extremely intelligent. Uh, Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back were actually very good movies. Uh, well, this is my own viewpoint, but I think most people will agree with me. Uh, you see a complete different change in the next movie down the line, which came out during Reagan's tenure in, uh, what was it, 1983, I think, with Return of the Jedi? Thereabouts, yeah. There were definitely changes made behind the scenes. It was supposed to be Revenge of the Jedi, first off. Well, it was decided Revenge of the Jedi sounded a little bit too aggressive, so they went with Return of the Jedi instead. And uh, there were arguments taking place at the boardroom level on that movie throughout its production, uh, all the way practically up to when it was released. I do not know all the details on it. I do remember reading quite a bit about it at the time. And they didn't talk specifically about what it was either, except that there were just arguments taking place in the boardroom about everything about the movie. Well, what did we get in the movie? Well, we got in the movie was the evil empire being overthrown by good, lovable teddy bears. I can't think of anything that personifies the philosophy of Ronald Reagan more. <laughs> now, do you think that, because like my cynical side wants to say that, you know, that that was all just, you know, a money grab in a way, too, that, you know, they they, they were like in with it. Well, marketing Ewoks? Yeah, in, sure. into the toy aspect and everything else. The marketing was like insatiable for the Star Wars movie, so maybe they thought... They had to up the ante of sellable crap, so they included the Ewok part. Of no it. argument from me. Uh, E.T., same thing. We want to have a lovable E.T. And like I said, the, the Republicans do not always have uh, evil aliens either. Sometimes they go the opposite direction. It, it's not unilateral. It's just generally what you find during given administrations. Yeah. Uh, you have to figure E.T., which is you know one of the highest uh, warm, fuzzy uh, extraterrestrial movies you could come across, came out during Reagan's tenure. Yeah, so... It just goes to show you that even though one there might be you know a goal in mind that other things kind of slip through slip through the cracks. Sure. Or uh, they they uh, I'm sure don't don't think unilaterally either. Uh, there might be a general philosophy at any given time that um, gee you know I think they're coming down here to vivisect us and rape Junior and force to force kids off of my daughter and yeah yeah yeah. Okay, well, you think that some days, but do you think that every day? Probably not. Yeah. And then what about the changes in Superman? Oh, and again, we're looking at the Reagan uh, years. Yeah, I think we've kind of moved into the Reagan years at this point. Is there, yes. more, is there more from the Carter era that you think, you know, merits mention? Oh, I'm, I'm sure there would be if it crossed my mind. I could figure <laughs> on several things. Uh, I, I should talk about Hangar 18 at some point. But um, before I hit that, since you brought it up, uh, yeah, Superman. 
major change in Superman in Superman 3 from Superman 2. And it's a change that would have suited exactly what was taking place uh, in our country, at least as far as Ronald Reagan saw it. Uh, the first two movies in the Superman series, pretty intelligent, very well done, well scripted, uh, well acted, and, extreme, and very well received, I would say, for the most part. The third movie, what happened? In the third movie, you have uh, some super industrialist creating a super military computer, which becomes sentient and tries to take off on its own. But the most important point is that you have Superman becoming evil Superman. Uh, Superman acts like a skid row bum. He goes unshaven. He's beating people up. And while he's beating people up, our homegrown American boy looks at him and says, Stop, Superman. Things will get better. It's okay. It's not that bad. You're better than that. You will, things will get better. Well, that's exactly what Ronald Reagan would have been trying to tell the entire country at that time. Yeah. The economy's bad. You're living on skid row. Don't take it out on everyone. Things will get better. See? <laughs> Even Superman's having a hard time of it, but he's okay. He's Superman. <laughs> so you think maybe it was like sort of the thing where they're like, listen, we need to give people a better outlook on things or something weird like that? Yeah. I, I actually believe that Ronald Reagan believed that. I think that he thought that absolutely everyone who was uh, having a hard time uh, just think positively, just like the, the musical Annie, you know. Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Just smile and think positively, and everything will turn out fine. He was completely <laughs> wrong, but I very genuinely believe that he believed. Uh, I'm certain that he believed that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then uh, I guess let's jump back and talk a little bit about Hangar 18. Hangar 18 is important, given the fact that it, it appears that Carter was looking for a more sort of educational thrust, and that is not ignoring the negative aspects of UFOs, like I said, with robot abduction and, and rape, if you want to put it that way, mind control and all of that, and alien with gestating uh, an alien life form forcibly inside someone. Now, mind you, in, in an alien abduction, they're not bursting out of someone all teeth and claws and ripping other people apart. <laughs> but you, you get what I'm driving at. Mm -hmm. Now, Hangar 18, you had a pretty intelligent movie. Now, this is uh, scheduled, I don't know when, but it's slated to come out on disc at some point, and I recommend it. Uh, it's got very dated special effects. But it's really not a bad movie, and it's fairly accurate, all things considered. Uh, what happens in Hangar 18 is there's an accident in space. Uh, some astronauts see a flying saucer. Uh, the flying saucer has a collision, and one astronaut loses his life. The flying saucer hits our atmosphere. It crash lands. The Air Force knows about it. They cordon off the area. They go pick it up. Uh, they pick the thing up, put it in a secret hangar, Hangar 18, and they're studying it. The astronauts who survived are trying to tell everyone about what happened, and suddenly they're persona non grata, and they're being shut up, and they're being told they didn't see anything, and the tapes that they took have been erased or altered, and they decide they're going to go tell everyone, and then they start getting chased by government goons. So you've got these two plots taking place over the course of this, which eventually dovetail. But what the government is finding out behind the scenes, and that's what this movie is all about, amounts to this. They find a human race on board, uh, close enough to us that... They'd pass for us. There are some slight differences, but they're human. Yeah. Uh, they have abducted various animals. They find them in canisters on board the saucer. And one of the animals they've abducted is, oh, look, that's a woman. <laughs> and they take her out, and she wakes up screaming. You know, she was paralyzed, didn't know what the hell was going on. Oh, my God. And when they first go aboard the saucer, one of them opens up a door, and what looks like a gray, only it's black, comes, like, rushing out at them. It looks like a little robot, actually. And they all start back in horror, and then they realize it's a spacesuit. But it looks just like a gray, really, <laughs> except that it's black. Yeah. Uh, and the people 
who died. The aliens are dead on board. They had an accident and something poisonous fell and it ended up killing them. So we can't question them. We don't know what's going on. But we do discover that they have been monitoring our military and industrial development and apparently have some sort of plan to take some sort of active steps concerning our development. But that's not gone into. That's where the movie ends. Interesting, yeah. So, wow, it's quite a sounds like quite a film here of of, uh, of ufological information. It sounds pretty much like exactly what the government insiders had found out about UFOs. That's my point. Yeah. And this is coming out right at the end of Carter's administration. Yeah, so like it's almost like they're doing their best to try and fucking get people to be like, listen, you know, pay attention to this thing because... <laughs> exactly. And now, one other uh, remnant of the Carter years that I wanted to ask you about, and it could almost start a whole another string of discussion, and that's the In Search Of series. Is this like the first uh, of its kind as far as, you know, what we'd later see with Unsolved Mysteries and Sightings and, and, and those sort of shows that, that, you know, like a magazine-style show that looks at the paranormal? Yes, I would say it was the first relatively good one. I'm not sure if it was the first one. It's the first one I can think of. There were movies, and as a matter of fact, it was during the Carter administration, interestingly enough. I wouldn't have thought of this if you, if you hadn't brought that up. Uh, that we saw a lot of pseudo-documentaries of the UFO and occult vein, most of which were really bad. Uh, they were bad mock-ups, and um, Alan Landsberg, Alan Landsberg produced a lot of these things. I think he's the one that did uh, In Search Of, too. Yeah. Uh, they were kind of a grab bag. He's the kind of guy that did the In Search Of Bigfoot movies at the drive-ins, and a lot of them, and stuff dealing with uh, curly and photography, UFOs, ghosts, anything of that sort. You started seeing that coming out uh, in the 1970s, uh, maybe even pre-Carter, but a whole lot of that stuff was coming out during Carter's tenure. Weird, like like badly made documentaries? Oh, yeah. And, and some that were, they might have been cheap, but at least they were sincere. I can remember a couple of the Landsbergs in particular, since you bring up In Search Of. Uh, I can't remember the names of them. But I do remember that was where I first learned about uh, Curly and Photography, uh, just as a single example, uh, springs to mind. I'd never heard of it before I saw their uh, this documentary. And it was accurate information and very interesting. Okay, weird. So you're saying that, that they weren't, like, insincere, because that's what I was going to ask you. Like, maybe that, you know, they were purposely making lousy documentaries, because that way it would be like, listen, this the, what better way to make it look like they have no case than to, than to make it look like they made a documentary and it was lousy, like... You know, look, you have no case for this thing, and, and you proved it by making a poor documentary that doesn't really prove anything. Well, the Landsbergs generally, and I would have to actually go back and watch some of these again because it's been many decades now. But as I recall, what the Landsbergs specifically were doing was reasonably intelligent and straightforward. It might have been low budget, but uh, I got the impression that it was sincere and it was relatively interesting. And Search Up was not a bad show. It was cheap. It was not always that interesting, but it meant well. But at the same time, there were a whole crapload of documentaries being made by all kinds of nameless companies that just sucked. They were unbelievably bad. And could that have been what was going on with those? Oh, yeah, I'm sure of it. I'm sure those were deliberate. Um, Overlords of the UFO comes to mind. Uh, it used to be uh, about 10 years ago. I haven't seen it in about that long. On TNT and TBS, uh, you would frequently on late night see Overlords of the UFO and movies like it. Overlords of the UFO is one I bring up because it's the classic example of a suck pseudo-documentary. It's badly edited and deliberately badly edited. I mean, very plainly, every copy of this movie that you see has jumps in the sprockets and exactly
exactly the same spot. So it's not an accident. They put that there on purpose. That's in the permanent film. Well, why would you do that? Because you want to sour everybody on it. You want it to look shoddy. You want it to look cheap. Uh, It's got really bad watercolor drawings. It's got... uh, a, a presenter who tries to sound like he's serious, but he's just proposing the most ridiculous things you've ever heard in your entire life. And there's, you know, like 90 minutes of this. And it's just un- ungodly bad. Yeah. And, of course, it's dealing with UFOs. It hits on other subjects as well, but UFOs is the big one. And it, it takes straw dog cases, I mean, just completely undocumented stuff, and acts as if it's real and tries to shove it down your throat. So to see all the different methods and means that they do these sort of things is like... It's mind-boggling and almost kind of scary just that <laughs> there's yeah. so many different angles that they've taken here to to, to uh, pollute the waters of ufology and, and the UFO phenomenon. Now, we're sort of talking here about how, you know, one of the positive goals is to sort of spark interest, even though it may not inform. That's how, kind of how we were talking about the X-Files. It yeah. does seem like maybe uh, that, that In Search Of uh, did a great job of that because there's so many people I talk to that, that – think fondly of and search of and say that that's what sort of got them into, uh, you know, looking at all the various fields of esoterica. I would agree. Uh, that's why I'm singling out the Landsbergs and saying, and as a matter of fact, um, Rod Serling kind of promoted the Landsbergs too. Even when he might poo-poo the subject of UFOs on the side, at the same time, uh, he would plug the Landsbergs books, their in search of books, and say, you know what, uh, I think there might be something to this ancient astronaut stuff. Uh, they're not alone. Um, the ones that are telling you that, that it inspired them, it inspired me too. Uh, maybe not to the extent that it did them, but it definitely did have the effect of getting me of thinking about those subjects. And, and you, I do think that was their intent. Yeah. And to sort of carry that thread further, what did you think of uh, you know the Unsolved Mysteries series, which sort of like was the the next generation of that of that genre? That's an excellent way to put it. It's the next generation of that genre. It's uh, just this generation's incarnation of that. What's your take on just the quality of these things as, as you know, getting good information out to people, though? Well, Unsolved Mysteries in particular I couldn't comment on because I really haven't watched it at length. Uh, but I have talked to people who are asking interesting questions just because they've watched that show. Yeah. So off the top of my head, I would automatically probably equate it with the Landsberg stuff. But I can't actually uh, talk about the quality of the shows because I haven't seen them. I do think it has that sort of effect, though. Okay, now what about sightings? I thought I thought you had talked about that before. Oh, sightings. Yeah, we want to talk about a mixed grab bag. Well, you get the same thing kind of on Rents' website. Mind you, I love Rents' website. I go to it every week. It's very much a grab bag, and you have to go with your critical skills intact. Be careful, because you don't know what you're going to bump into there. However, uh, you can't find a better clearing ground just for jumping off and getting some research done, because it'll link you to all kinds of places. So if you bring your critical skills with you and shop around, you're going to find a lot to study there. And, yeah, I think sightings on TV was exactly the same way. It was a grab bag, but when it was good, it was very good. Yeah. At the risk of venturing into the uh, contemporary, do you think this, it seems like that style of program really is is not even around anymore, which is disappointing. Oh, you mean a sort of documentary thing? No, I mean like sort of like the news magazine style. They present, you know, a mystery and then you know, move on. But I guess maybe there may be some that I'm not even thinking of, but there isn't like a juggernaut-type show that, that really uh, everybody in, in the paranormal field watches for Off their... Off the top of my head, no, I can't think of one, now that you mention it. Mind you, when it comes to uh, actual mainline TV, I catch up to a lot of stuff late. Like at the time I wrote my book, Lois and Clark had been on the air when I was writing, and I didn't mention it once because I hadn't seen it. Uh, it just did not cross my mind when I was writing it. 
Uh, like I said, I was watching Stargate SG-1 when you called because I'm catching up to it. <laughs> there are so many uh, shows out there now, I mean, just masses of them, that there are not enough hours in the day for you to watch them all. So even if I TiVo, even if I Netflix, I still have to set time aside to catch all these things. And, yeah, eventually I kind of get to them. Uh, but, no, I don't know of any uh, particular shows in that vein uh, on the air today. That doesn't mean there aren't any. Uh, I would probably be the last person who would know if there was. <laughs> but, yeah, there, I don't know of any. Okay. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4 and Volume 2 of the Rocks Trilogy. Big, big thanks once again to Bruce Rocks. He is the man. Check out his books, Architects of the Underworld and Hollywood vs. the Aliens. They are available on Amazon.com. And obviously, Bruce will be back next week to wrap up the Rocks trilogy with our final installment known as The Postscript. More on that in just a little bit. But first, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. We're only doing one email this week. It's a bit of a long one, and it's also hilarious, and I think you're all going to enjoy it quite a bit. And we'll have a little Zabel update for you at the end of BOA Audio listener feedback. So let's do the email first, and then we'll get to the Zabel update. Without a doubt, over the course of the last four years, I've gotten a ton of emails, and this one rockets to the top of the list, if not the very best. It is definitely one of the best emails I've ever received over the course of this program. Let's just get right into it. It comes from Mag. No hometown listed, just Mag. And here's what she has to say. First off, as a mom, if I hear my kids saying anything negative to their siblings, I make them stand there in front of the world and say five positive things to the kid that they just slammed. That said, I want to start off with five positive things before I rant all over your behind. One, super show. Really, I mean that. Two, awesome guests. Folks I have never heard of, and I've been into UFO things since high school. Three, real touch that you care about worms. Geez, are you really a guy? Yeah, I'm a twit. That's what she says. I'll explain that in a little bit. Four, like how your guests are talked to. Like how you are respectful, and you are like an old friend. Five, homey atmosphere going on. Laid back. That's a good thing. Like the chuckle, too. Okay, so those are all the positive things Mag says. Now, here's what else she has to say. Now the mommy rant. Your mouth. Jeez. You know, I noticed you don't use any swear words until your guest lets one out, and then you run with it for like another five minutes. Sounds like you're trying to outdo them and show your stuff. Please stop it. I've got two teenagers here and one tweener that love to listen to the show with me. My hubby drives trucks, so he's not here but I know he'd even agree with this letter. Tim, I didn't care much for school, and I'm trying to raise my own to find better words than damn and to express themselves. Please don't encourage them in the smut. Will you please tell Damien, Mark, and Brian over the air that the choice of vocabulary in this world does make a difference, and that their mom is right. If I hear Benal does it one more time, I'm going to go postal. Thank you, Mag. P.S. Big fan, but you still need a good smack. So there you go. <laughs> so there you go. That was the email from Mag. I loved it, to be honest with you. One of the funniest emails I've ever received. First of all, yes, I love my worms, Mag. She's referring to a Twitter post that I had about a garden. I was making a worm garden, which unfortunately failed with all this rain we've been having. 
And I care about my worms, Matt, because I'm going to use them for bait when I go fishing. I don't want to lose them, which I eventually ended up having happen. So that sort of explains me caring about worms. Now on to the big thing here, my mouth. I didn't even, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> for starters, Damien, Mark, Brian, listen to your mother. I am certainly no role model, although it really thrills me to no end to know that there are children running around this world saying banal does it as excuses for their <laughs> rotten behavior. Your mom says here that you guys are teenagers and one tweener. And, you know, I was thinking about this email from Mag for quite a while. It really stuck in my brain. If you're like zero to seven, maybe around there, swearing, awesome, hilarious. Everyone loves like a five-year-old who swears. And if you're over like 25, maybe, you can use swear sparingly. By then, you kind of can adjust them into your vocabulary and get away with it. And, of course, once you're over the age of 60, any swear you use is hilarious and awesome as well. But there is this window of time in there from about mm, 11 to 12 all the way up to 19, 20. Swearing, not cool. People think it's lame. I don't know what it is, but Damien, Mark, Brian, I'm telling you, it's just not cool. People don't like it. Because I used to swear when I was that age, and people, you know, thought I was a clown shoe. And so I'm passing on my wisdom here to the children of MAG. You're in the window right now. You have to watch your language, especially around your mom and stuff. You know, she's trying to do her best to raise you guys. And you should really, uh, you know, bend to her will. Because it sounds like MAG is one tough cookie, and I would not want to run afoul of her. So, Damien, Mark, Brian, once again, listen to your mother Swearing is not cool. Mag, have you tried washing their mouths out with soap? That might work. Swearing is not cool, Damien, Mark, and Brian. You're at that age, that tender age, when, you know, people look at kids that swear and they're like, who is raising that little creature? You represent your mom. You represent Mag when you're out there in the world. So you got to straighten it up. Fly right, my friends. Listen to your mom. She knows what's best for you. And now I'm telling you the same thing. Your mom's right. I am in complete agreement here with her. Now, does that mean I'm not going to swear on the show? I just can't help it, folks. You should hear me when I'm not on the show. I swear more than I do during the show. I guess really the good thing about the swearing is just really that it shows that I'm sort of in a groove there with the guest, and we completely forget that there's even anyone listening and that it is even a show, and it turns into that homey feeling, as you mentioned, Mag, and, you know, it's more of a conversation going on that, is uh, eventually going to be heard by thousands of people. So, you know, I guess it's just a sign that we've really chilled out during the interview. But I will do my best to watch my language. Thank you, Mag, for bringing this serious matter to my attention. I really appreciate it. And you made my day when I got the email my week and really my month and possibly my whole season here of the program with this email. Loved it. Thank you, Mag. I already wrote her back. Looking forward to hearing what she has to say about this little segment at the end of the program. Now, Zabel update. What's going on, William Zabel? I don't know. There's not much of an update, really, to tell you folks. I called him, uh, I think, last week, and no answer. I didn't leave a message on the machine. So then I called him tonight and left a message on his machine with my number and, and you know, tried to get across that people were wondering what the hell was going on. So we'll see if Zabel calls back. If he does, I'll have an update for you folks. If he doesn't, I'll let you know here next week, and maybe I'll call you know, towards the end of the week and leave another message. I don't know. But I'm sort of chilled out a little more about it. Hopefully William is alive and well and out there. I know that his website had some sort of issues 
uh, when I was trying to track him down originally. So, you know, maybe he's just really busy and doesn't have time to attend to the website or answer emails or answer the phone. <laughs> that does sound kind of troubling, but we'll see what happens. And uh, hopefully we'll hear from William Zabel in the not-too-distant future, and I'll be able to let you all know what's going on with him. All right, that wraps up VOA Audio listener feedback. Thank you once again, Mag, from the bottom of my heart for one of the best emails I've ever received. On top of all that, you got to admit, any mom that listens to the program with her three kids, Damian, Mark, and Brian, is one cool lady. Mag, you are awesome. You're amazing. Passing on the BOA audio stylings to a whole other generation. That's kind of scary, but I like it. If you want to be a part of BOA audio listener feedback in a future edition of the program, we've only got a few episodes left this season, folks. Now's the time to get your email into me for reading here at the end of the show. There's three methods. You can write to BOA audio at hotmail.com or go to Benall of America and click the contact button. And the final way is, of course, to join up at the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Those are the three methods we love having folks at the forum, and I, of course, love getting your emails. If I haven't written you back yet and you wrote to me recently, just sit tight. I answer all the emails, but sometimes it takes me a little longer to get to them than I would like, but I will write you back. Use those methods, send me your emails, your comments, your critiques, your guest suggestions, any of that stuff. And we'll feature it here at the end of the program on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Up next, it is the thanks portion of the show. Let me run through the list of the amazing BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Lasha Seniuk, and A.M. Murphy. They are great writers. They produce some outstanding material for Banal of America week in and week out. Let me give you a little rundown of what they wrote this past week at the website. Lasha Seniuk checked in with her column Field Notes this week titled Angels with Fur about her late pet cat and how it came back and uh, visited her a few times and stuff like that. Great stuff. Uplifting material there from Lasha Seniuk in Field Notes. Angels with Fur. You can find that at, of course, BOA. On Friday, Rochelle Hawks posted an all-new Medusa's Ladder titled Kate Bush in the Occult talking all about the esoteric connections with Kate Bush's music. Rochelle always manages to find stuff that I've never even heard of or never even thought of and how they're connected to the esoteric. Outstanding material there from Rochelle Hawks, Kate Bush, and the Occult. And finally, Leslie checks in with her weekly column, Grey Matters, talking about all these weird celebrity deaths in the past week or so. The column is titled Celebrity Death Times 3, talks about the whole three connection with deaths and, of course, her thoughts on Michael Jackson, Farrah Fawcett, and Ed McMahon, how they all passed away this past week. Great stuff from Leslie, Celebrity Death Times 3. Check that out as well. So we've got Field Notes by Lasha Seniuk, Angels with Fur, Medusa's Ladder by Rochelle Hawks, Kate Bush and the Occult, and Leslie's Great Matters, Celebrity Death Times 3. All of those can be found, of course, at BOA. It's become the catchphrase of the credits portion of the show. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Benall of America, you're only getting half the story. Check out BOA. Check out the stuff that falls through the cracks and is picked up, dusted off, and shined out real well by the BOA staff. BenallofAmerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. 
And if you don't know how to spell the website URL, it's pretty simple. It's www.binnallofamerica.com. Check it out. Now it is time for us to turn to you and ask for some donations. The season's almost wrapping up. I'm going to make a big push for donations on the season finale, as we always do. But if you want to stay ahead of the curve and take care of business now, that would be appreciated. I know a lot of folks are just scraping by, so if they can't donate, that's completely understood. No problem. We're all weathering this financial storm as best we can. If you're hanging in there well, though, and you're doing all right and you can make a donation, that would be hugely appreciated. How do you make a donation? That's simple. Go to banalofamerica.com or the BOA Audio Archive page. You'll see the PayPal button there. Click that. PayPal will walk you through the process. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping Banal of America and BOA Audio freely available and up and running and commercial free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Yikes, it's another long end cap this week, folks, but we got another little part here to do, and that, of course, is the preview portion for next week's show. It is the concluding installment of the Rocks trilogy. We're subtitling it The Postscript. And it pretty much wraps up the whole marathon conversation with Bruce Rocks. Let me give you a rundown of what we're going to be talking about. We're going to find out about the UFO-related entertainment offerings of the George Bush and Bill Clinton years, culminating in the publication of Bruce's book in 1997. Then we'll get Bruce's perspective on how things have shaped up since the book came out, what he thinks of a variety of films and TV shows from 1997 to 2009, the years after Hollywood vs. the Aliens, his take on the reality TV boom, and where he sees things headed into the future. Plus, we'll cover some of the stuff that may have fallen through the cracks in the previous installments, most notably the Manchurian Candidate. Bruce covers that in depth in Volume 3. And we're really going to get beneath the surface here with Bruce Rocks and find out what's been going on with him over the last nine years, what he may be working on now and why he's been missing in action from the world of ufology for almost a decade. We're going to really dig into that quite a bit. So for folks who listened to Volume 1 and were left kind of hanging there wondering if we were going to find out more about Bruce Rocks, you will in Volume 3, trust me. Quick rundown here of some of the films and programs discussed in this installment. It's an amazing list. Here's just a few of them. Capricorn 1, E.T., Red Dawn, Men in Black, Independence Day. Starship Troopers, Contact, Mission to Mars, Battlefield Earth, Ghosts of Mars, Signs, Stargate SG-1, Lost, Steven Spielberg's Taken miniseries, movies based on esoteric events like Fire in the Sky, and a whole bunch more. That's just a little hit list of shows and movies, and there's tons more we're going to talk about in Volume 3. It's the conclusion of a remarkable conversation with a truly amazing researcher, Bruce Rucks, finishing up our look at what he sees as an ongoing five-decade-plus program aimed at shaping what people think about the UFO phenomenon. That's next week, only on Banal of America Audio. Come on back for that. It should be posted midweek as usual. Until then, we close it out here for the week. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Of course, thanks to Bruce Rucks again. Can't wait to hear what people think once we wrap up the complete trilogy. And, of course, i got to thank the amazing BOA Audio listeners. You guys are top-notch, spanning the globe. I'm just amazed by all the different folks in different countries who write to me and say they enjoy the program. just blows my mind, to be honest with you. And I can't thank you enough for your ongoing support and for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. You guys are the best. 
Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.